The following program is brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. Welcome to Restoration Radio. I am one of your co-hosts, Stephen Heiner. You were just listening to Palestrina's Two Ace Petrus, and um, we are here today at a major show, three hours in length. So um, get in a comfortable chair or get someplace comfortable um, because we're going to be here for a while. Now we're very privileged, my co-host Nicholas Wansbutter and Dr. Pierre Tugel, to be joined um, today with uh, His Excellency um, Bishop Donald Sanborn, who's going to help guide us through the documents, at least six of them, that comprise the Second Vatican Council. Because of the length of the show and because of the amount of detail we're going to be going into, we won't be taking telephone calls this show, but we do encourage you to leave questions on Twitter. The handle is at True Restoration. We'll be monitoring those and we'll be answering those questions every 30 minutes. At least we will do our best to. Uh, Today we have a show sponsor, and that's another first for us in addition to it being a three-hour show. Um, but t- today, today's show is sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. And I'm going to read the ad here. For the past five years, Bishop Bernard Follet, head of the Society of St. Pius X, has engaged in endless doctrinal talks with Benedict XVI's representatives to get official recognition from the Vatican II Church. Yet many in the Society agree with Bishop Bernard Tissier de Malloray who recently warned that the cost of being recognized is to be silenced from speaking out against the revolution in the church. This very danger was seen as far back as 2005 when Novus Ordo Watch accurately forecast Benedict XVI will seek to destroy the traditional Catholic resistance not by attacking it, but by neutralizing it. He will seek to undermine its reason for being. Though the talks have stalled, Benedict's aim of neutralizing the society hasn't changed. As the Vatican says, it still seeks to bring the group into its fold. For the web's most incisive analysis of this and other issues vital to Catholics, visit NovaSortoWatch.org. Now entering its 11th year of exposing Satan's war against the Church, stay informed with NovaSortoWatch.org. And I will share more about sponsorship opportunities later in the show. Um, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit about our guest. I think he's fairly well known among traditionalist circles, uh, but some people t- tuning into our show today. Um, may not be familiar with him. Uh, Bishop Donald Sanborn was ordained by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre um, in Icone. He was one of those um, Americans who uh, went over over to Switzerland to find uh, some semblance of a traditional formation after he had tried um, basically a seminary that had been imbued with, with the Novus Ordo takeover. He was almost immediately sent back here to the United States to help run things, be it um, the uh, school on Long Island uh, that was connected with the society, or the seminary, which first started in Michigan and then moved to Richfield. And there, the then Father Sanborn served as rector 
until his expulsion from the Society of St. Pius X in 1983. He, along with eight other American priests, were expelled at that time. Um, the then Father Sanborn continued uh, with his pastoral work, reading, writing, um, serving in Michigan, uh, which uh, then turned into uh, a seminary um, in 1995, Most Holy Trinity Seminary. And more recently, uh, that seminary has moved down to Florida, certainly a warmer, uh, warmer climate than Michigan's. And somewhere uh, during that time period, also in 2002, um, Bishop Sanborn was consecrated bishop. So I, I suppose, Your Excellency, this is your, your 10th year anniversary, is it not? Yes, that's correct. Well, congratulations, Admiral Posanos. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I think um, we had been talking in the in the pre-show discussion that it's it's unfair to obviously it's it's been 40 years since the council, four years of a council, you know, so many documents. We're really just narrowing our focus to six. So. We're not going to be able to cover everything, but I think you agree that there are some major points that can be, you know, one or two or three major points that can be taken out of each of these documents to show just how radical the thinking is within these council documents. Yes, that's correct. An awful lot of what is in Vatican II is a repetition of Catholic doctrine or Catholic philosophy, uh, and uh, but there are some very important points sandwiched in all of that that are contradictory to Roman Catholicism, and they have to be looked at very carefully. Absolutely. Now, um, my lord, before we jump into the uh, documents themselves, I, I was thinking it would be important for our listeners and to, important for us to give a context to our discussion to if we, we could get you to talk a little bit about what is an ecumenical council and what makes a gathering of bishops an ecumenical council versus some other sort of uh, gathering or a, a general council of the church, I, I guess would be the other proper term to use. Well, usually ecumenical council and general council mean the same thing. Uh, there is There are certain differences of terminology, but it means a gathering of all the bishops of the church in principle, that is, where you have a legitimate representation, uh, morally speaking, of all of the bishops of the church. It doesn't mean that every single bishop in the whole world must be there, but it must be a general gathering of the bishops of the church, and they come together under the convocation of the pope, uh, by his convocation, and under his authority, and up to Vatican II, the only reason for the the convocation was to combat a heresy, uh, because they are extraordinary things. And these ecumenical councils, uh, the word ecumenical coming from the Greek word for household or, or general uh, general household, oikumene, the word economy comes from the same thing. Uh, they they have the power, if they are approved by the Pope, to declare and define doctrine uh, solemnly. And uh, that's what they have always done. And we, of course, are familiar with the great councils of Trent and Nicaea and, and many others which the lay people may not be familiar with, but which have all defined doctrine solemnly. Uh, and that is an ecumenical council in contrast to a local council in a country 
where bishops may come together and uh, and make certain laws, usually uh, of a pastoral nature. Uh, seldom will they they speak about doctrine at those things. It's, they're usually pastoral. Uh, those actually can be elevated to uh, to uh, Catholic teaching if the Pope approves of what they have said. There is a, there are a number of cases of that where the Pope elevates their teaching to the magisterium of the Church. Uh, but an ecumenical council is one that I described, uh, and it means right. the same thing as a general council. And, uh, Lord, you mentioned uh, the, the Pope uh, giving his uh, approbation to uh, something that a, a council has done. And it, I, I've just been reading in preparation for the show uh, the book Tumultuous Times by uh, the Fathers uh, Radetzky, mm-hmm. and... Um, it seems that that's one of the keys that, that sets a general council apart, or what makes a general council a valid one or a, a real one, is is if it the Pope or the papal legate, in the case of many of the earlier councils that were held in the East, uh, signs off on it, if it were, and then that's what sets it apart from uh, anti-councils or things that aren't part of the magisterium that may not necessarily be anti-councils. Is that yes. accurate? However, it, that it, it is, but that's, uh, it is also true that the Pope can declare as an ecumenical general council one that was uh, not necessarily convoked by him. He can, he can uh-huh. elevate it to that level, uh, and in which uh, perhaps there were not delegates of the Roman See. The whole thing, in, in the Catholic Church, the man with all the power is the Pope, and he can... Make his own the 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 doctrinal pronouncements that were were made by various councils, and he can elevate them to the level of general councils if he wants to. Your Excellency, you you mentioned how it's possible for a, a what you call a pastoral council to be upgraded, so to speak, to an ecumenical council. Now, one of the canons of Vatican II is that it was not a dogmatic but a pastoral council. Uh, this has been used by some traditionalists to suggest the, the, the lesser importance of the documents that follow from it, even that we might, to a certain degree, ignore them. Could you explain what you understand by that use of the term pastoral council with regard to, to Vatican II? Well, it is true that John XXIII said that the purpose of the council, one of the purposes, is a pastoral council, and hmm. that it was necessary to present the uh, traditional doctrine of the church in a new way. However, that does not exclude doctrine. Uh, if you look at any of the general councils, they all spoke about pastoral things. Trent did, Ephesus did, Nicaea did. There, there are pastoral considerations and enactments in all of those councils. Uh, there's hardly any council that I can think of that spoke only about doctrine. Um, and uh, so to to hang your hat on that is as if to say, well, we really don't have to pay attention to it or it doesn't have any authority because it had a pastoral end or purpose. It's just not true. And there are many declarations in in that council which contradict that idea that it is merely pastoral, that it is merely a question of, of uh, making certain laws or certain disciplines. Uh, you have uh, one in one document. It says we saw this council solemnly declares. Now that's language that is appropriate to a solemn teaching of the church, a, a, 
ex cathedra teaching of the church. Whenever a council says, we solemnly declare. Now, you know, if if the council fathers had understood that we're speaking only about disciplines here, we're not even touching dogma, they would never have said those things. You have also the dogmatic decree on the church, the dogmatic constitution on the church, uh, uh, that was meant to complete Vatican I, uh, that that dogmatic constitution was actually c- prepared for Vatican I, but Vatican I had to disperse in the summer of 1870 because of the Franco-Prussian War and the 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 invasion of the uh, Freemasons into Rome. But uh, so that was meant as a completion, and that was the original idea of the council, even under Pius XII, was that the the dogmatic council of Vatican I had to be completed. And that was on the minds of all of those popes. They could not do it for as long as the Roman question was, was, uh, uh, was burning. But Pius XII actually started to think about a council uh, in order to complete the dogmatic council of Vatican I. However, the cardinals persuaded him against it because they said that the situation in the church is so volatile uh, dogmatically that the council might go bad. And therefore, he decided not to do it. Right now, uh, my lord, you made mention of dogmatic constitution, and uh, that's something uh, I'd ask you if we could speak a little bit about that uh, before we go into the documents, because we're going to hear about different types of documents. Uh, there's dogmatic constitution, declarations, and decrees, and I think we'll be covering. Uh, well, and then there's the pastoral constitution as well, I suppose. Um, I think that's how Gaudium it says has identified it. Um, yes. What's the difference between a constitution, a declaration, decree? Um, At bottom, there's no difference uh, from the point of view of the authority of it. Uh, uh, all dogmatic theologians uh, treating of that say the same thing. Encyclicals, this, that, or the other thing, whatever you want to call the document, really doesn't matter. What matters is the intention of the Pope or of the Council in what he is teaching, the authority that he is using in order to teach. So, for example, an encyclical could talk about a hundred different things, but it could contain perhaps two uh, dogmatic statements that are de fide catholica, definita, which are, are defined Catholic doctrine. Uh, Casti Canubii is an example of that. The, the condemnation of artificial birth control in Casti Canubii of Pius XI uh, in the 1930s uh, is a, a, a dogmatic, a, a solemn dogmatic statement concerning that. Uh, and However, he said many other things in there that were merely explanations of Catholic doctrine, and he did not intend to promulgate those as as defined doctrines. So it really doesn't matter what they call it. That what matters is the individual sentences, the sections where you see language that, is, that uh, involves authority. Also, the citing of revelation is another sign of declaring with authority. Because if they cite revel- re- revelation, it means they are interpreting this sacred scripture or tradition uh, in this way, and therefore it is binding upon the faithful. Well, it seems that there's a lot of uh, scripture quoted, but... Sorry, go ahead, Stephen. 
Oh, no, that, that's fine. I, I was going to say, you're, you're talking about, you know, the intent, and that's another, you know, Piers, men, uh, Piers mentioned the the canard of uh, pastoral council. Well, it's a pastoral council, so we don't have to worry about it. We didn't think about it. Um, <clears throat> so, too, well, that was the spirit of Vatican II. That isn't what Vatican II said. You know, so, so the interpret. I, I think you've referred to it as the interpretation. There's another way of looking at it too. Is also the interpretation. Can you speak a little bit to, you know, who interprets the council? What is that? How does that form, or does, or does it form part of the magisterium? Well, interpretation in general is the discovery of what the a person, a writer, or a group of persons in this case meant when he said something. And it's important to understand that he meant a certain thing, one certain thing when he said something. So even if he said it ambiguously, in his mind he meant a certain thing. Ambiguity can only be in terms and in sentences and in words. It cannot be in the mind. It's very important to understand. So there is a single mind of Vatican II and a single interpretation too often, again, for people who are finding problems with Vatican II, they would like to see interpretation as spin. That is, we can take this and work with it and massage it in such a way that it comes out orthodox, that, that it is not offensive to Catholic doctrine. But that has really nothing to do with what they meant. Now, the, the Church operates on authority, and the persons, obviously, who are authorized to tell us what the council meant is the authority, <laughs> or you know, the persons in authority. So uh, it is, we should look at the, not only the statements of Paul VI, John Paul II, and, and Benedict XVI, but also their actions, and even their permissions, because uh, when authority permits something, uh, and does not condemn something which it ought to condemn, it is considered to consent to it. That's a general moral principle. So you have to look at all of those things in order to say what Vatican II meant. And clearly, if you look at those things, uh, they, it, it puts a, an entirely heterodox interpretation upon Vatican II. There's no way to save it if you uh, are taking their interpretation, the interpretation of authority, uh, in order to, to interpret that council. Uh, the other thing I would say is that no council in history ever had this problem. Councils clarify. They, they don't make things dark and gray. They, they, they clarify. There was never any problem about what Trent meant or what Nicaea meant. This, after 50 years, we're still talking about what this council meant. And the reason for this is that there are many people who understand that that council has a serious, serious problem. It contradicts, and it is responsible for the general condition of the church today, which is absolutely deplorable. And they do everything that they can to find a way out, that is, a, a way of saving the council, on the one hand, and... Uh, of of somehow making it uh, orthodox and in and this is what they call the hermeneutic or in, uh, interpretation of continuity. Your Excellency, that's a that's a, a term I've discussed with uh, friends and on the kind of the Novus Ordo, the more conservative wing of the traditional movement or the conservative Novus Ordo. Um, 
But I wonder whether, for the purposes of this discussion, we too, as questioners, as it were, should assume the orthodoxy of these documents, try and test them for this hermeneutic continuity to see how far we can uh, interpret them in a, most in a more positive spin. Uh, and certainly, uh, I've been trying to do that so that uh, we can really demonstrate that there, there is an, an impossibility in doing that. Yes, uh, I think that's correct in this sense that when you have the entire episcopate uh, of the Catholic Church united with the uh, person who by all external appearances is the, is the Roman pontiff, the presumption is in favor of it. The, yeah. the, whenever authority speaks, you, it, it, the presumption is always in favor of the fact that it's doing the right thing or saying the right thing. And uh, presumption is only overcome by fact. And therefore, yes, when you go into Vatican II, as we all did in the 1960s, those of us who were alive in the 1960s, <laughs> open those books figuring this is another wonderful council of the Church, and uh, we can't wait to hear what this council is going to say. Very good. I mean, it's difficult knowing where to begin, in a way, because there's, there's so many documents, uh, and so many of them are so long, uh, voluminous, even. Um, you suggested that we begin with ecumenism, because uh, I understand from you that you, you feel that the new interpretation of ecumenism, or the, the focus on ecumenism in the Council, is really at root and the central idea. And with that in mind, we're going to begin with... Uh, Unitatis Red Integratio, the decree on ecumenism yeah. of the 21st of November, 64. I should just point out to, to listeners of uh, Restoration Radio that they can follow along the text as we discuss it on Twitter if they go to uh, the, the uh, Restoration Radio Twitter account. Um, so could you perhaps begin by explaining why you think ecumenism is the key or the place that we should begin uh, discussing the Vatican II Council? Because... Uh, we, first of all, we have to understand the council as, and this we understand in hindsight. I did not see this in 1964 or 62, uh, but in hindsight, we have to understand the council as the uh, triumph of the modernists to bring about a transformation of the Catholic religion without, however, changing the Catholic structure. If you read Loisy and various other modernists of the turn of the last century, uh, they have this dream of, of a church that will conform itself to the modern age and all of the modern thinking, uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, and if you go back, uh, actually if you go back even into the 17th century, the, uh, there was a, a general call for the... Uh, elimination of the dogmatic differences among Christians mm. and a, an amalgamation into one church. Immanuel Kant said in the late 18th century that the greatest moment for religion is when they all abandon their, their uh, you know, separatism, so to speak, the, uh, and join into one big general religion. Uh, and he was, of course, one of the quote-unquote bright lights of the Enlightenment. Uh, and uh, then in the uh, 19th century, there was uh, a lot of movement among the Protestants, especially, especially with the rise of the liberal Protestants, uh, and also even among the Jews. The, um, for example, uh, Adolf Crémieux uh, founded the uh, um, Alliance Israelite uh, Universelle, the Universal Jewish Alliance, in, in the 1840s. 
And his stated goal was the transformation of Judaism into something that is acceptable to the modern world, and through that to transform other religions so that they too become acceptable to the modern world. Uh, and then, of course, the modernist movement uh, came up uh, uh, through the, the liberal Protestants, spilling over into the Catholic Church, and uh, that was a very, very uh, strong uh, movement among them was the, the erasing of the dogmatic differences between various religions. And so you had that famous uh, movement uh, in the 1860s uh, in England, uh, the Society for the uh, Promotion yeah. of Christian Unity, I forget what, what it was called exactly, but which was very, very clearly condemned uh, by Pius IX, uh, and where Cardinal Patrizzi said that these principles that you are putting out here, which are essentially the principles that Vatican II put out, uh, are absolutely and intrinsically contrary to the nature of the Catholic Church. Uh, it's a very important document. He was the head of the Holy Office at the time, Cardinal Patrizzi. Right. And um, uh, that whole episode, the, the branch movement, uh, the branch theory movement uh, in England, was really a precursor of this whole thing. And then it spilled over uh, into the uh, liturgical movement, which, as you know, was hijacked by modernists in the uh, like the teens, the twenties, the thirties, and their idea was the accomplishment of ecumenism through the liturgy, and it was uh, uh, Baudouin, one of their again bright lights, quote unquote, or prime movers might be a better word, who said what we need is a pope who will call a council and consecrate ecumenism. And therefore, I think that uh, at least one of the the major contributing causes of this council is this idea to consecrate ecumenism and to make the 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 content of the Catholic Church not the Catholicism that we have all, always known, but a vanilla, dogmaless, uh, humanitarian religion that is able to get along with any other religion on the face of the earth. So I, I think it's pivotal. Yeah, I mean, the, the actual document itself is, is, is it sort of intimates uh, heresy in various places. Um, it never quite goes as far as these earlier kind of uh, suggestions or the, the openly heretical suggestions about unifying all religion into one kind of global religion. But there are certain points that I, I thought were worth picking out when I was going through it. The first one I wanted to ask you about was um, section three, paragraph one, in which um, the authors speak about the Eastern churches as being, quote, separated from full communion with the Catholic Church. Is that, uh, is that a traditional idea, or is that something new, this idea that some through, quote, some through imperfect communion with the Catholic Church, they go on being... Uh, it's a very traditional idea among the Protestants. Uh, the Protestants have always spoken about that. Well, you know, I, I'm in partial communion with you because we agree on certain things, we don't agree on others. And they, the Protestants, of course, see the church as a production of humanity. Uh, they, they, uh, they come together because they believe the same things. And uh, not a production of God, not something that God has created and a structure that God has created, but something that human beings have created. So they have no problem in saying to each other, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway into your church, so to speak. Uh, and, but uh, the actual author of that, 
his particular term was Oscar Kuhlmann, mm. who was a personal friend of Benedict XVI. He's dead now. Uh, Oscar Kuhlmann is dead. But he was the one that cooked that up, that business mm. of partial communion. I, I defy anyone to find in traditional dogma books the idea of partial communion. It doesn't yeah. exist. Uh, it is an entirely new thing. It's a novelty, as, as the, the church always says, horror of novelty. <laughs> it, hello. It, it is uh, contrary to uh, all of the the dogma concerning the church and all of the classical ecclesiology concerning the church. Yeah, I mean, section paragraph section three, the same section, paragraph four, seems to have an even more striking uh, and, and suspiciously heretical claim, and that is that non-Catholic churches can act as means of salvation. Um, it says, for the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using separated churches as a means of salvation which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of the grace and tr truth entrusted to the Catholic Church. I wondered whether there wasn't actually a way of reading that in a more traditional way, such that the decree is merely saying that whatever grace believers in non-Catholic churches acquire comes from and through the Catholic Church, rather than from the separated church to which they actually belong. Is that a viable reading, do you think? No, I don't, because it says these ecclesial communities, these churches and ecclesial communities, it's a heretical statement as it stands, because it it says that these organizations, these groups, which in the eyes of God do not even exist, because they're not true churches, and what is not true does not exist. So in the eyes of God, they don't even exist. They are simply collections of schismatics or heretics. That they have, uh, they are means of salvation. Now, that's a very important statement. The only thing that these groups have are the stolen property of the Catholic Church with regard to some valid sacraments at best, or with regard to some doctrines at best. Now, I made an analogy in one of my, my articles of an airplane that has no jet engines and maybe no wheels, but it has some of the elements of a, of a, of a jet airplane. Now, would you take that from New York to Paris? And someone would say, well, what, are you crazy? Of course I wouldn't get on that airplane, because it's missing all of its many essential parts. When you say something is a means, you're saying that it has all of the uh, necessary ability to take you where you are supposed to go. Uh, and that is heretical. These, all these people can do is, yes, teach you some truth mixed in with heresy, give you a valid baptism perhaps, and in the case of the Greek Orthodox, give you a valid Eucharist. But in doing these things, in preaching and in, 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 in doing the, the sacraments, they are actually committing sin, and the people who, who are, are taking part in them are com also committing sin objectively, and Pius the seventh or sixth or seventh said that concerning the constitutional clergy. Uh, in France, he said that very thing, that, that it's an occasion of sin for both, to, for, to bring your child to uh, the baptismal font of the constitutional clergy. It's a sin to do that, and it's a sin for the priest to give it. Uh, these people are committing sin. This is the traditional theology of the Church. Uh, it was uh, Cardinal Mazzella in the 19th century who said that these are the stolen goods of the Catholic Church. But 
So at best, they can give you some of the elements of sanctification. Illegally and improperly and sinfully, they can do that, but nevertheless, validly. But that doesn't mean that they are a means of salvation. Salvation means that they are the way in which to go to God. That if you observe everything that they tell you to observe, you will end up in heaven. That is a heresy. There is a single means of salvation, and that is the Roman Catholic Church, and Pius IX said it. He said it is a most well-known Catholic dogma, and Vatican II explicitly contradicts Pius IX on that. Yeah, so it does sound pretty heretical. Um, That's talking about the Eastern churches or the separated ecclesial communities, but there are suggestions in the document, too, that that about the church itself, the Catholic Church, which seem odd, perhaps, to, to uh, a traditional census catholicus. Um, earlier magisterial teachings, for example, emphasized that the church is a perfect society, it's divinely instituted, and without spot or wrinkle, uh, a, a term that Leo XIII uses in Satis Cognitum. But we hear the same phrase uh, from the Canticle of Canticles used here, but in apparently a different way, quote, Every Catholic must therefore aim at Christian perfection, and each according to his station, play his part, that the Church, which bears in her own body the humility and dying of Jesus, may daily be more purified and renewed against the day when Christ will present her to himself in all her glory, without spot or wrinkle. Uh, This seems to suggest that the perfection of the Church, without spot or wrinkle, is something that will only be achieved at the end of the time. Again, way in which things can be understood uh, orthodoxly is saying that that perfection is only something that will be manifest to men at the end of time, but is always there. Yes, that that is also heretical uh, in this sense that the, the constant teaching of the Catholic Church concerning itself is that it is infallible, indefectible, and pure and holy in all of its essential aspects and qualities. It has, says nothing about the conduct of its members, but in, in everything that God has made it, it's uh, holy and pure and without stain and, and wrinkle. To say that that is only an eschatological thing, that, that is, that in the evolution of time we're going to end up that way, uh, implying that right now we're, we're stained with all of these divisions, uh, which is certainly the spirit of that document, uh, is heretical. Okay. Understood in that way, it's heretical, and I think that that is the proper understanding of it. Certainly the fact that um, the, the Church then suggests that her children might wish to apologize for their sins towards schismatics and heretics for not actually being a good enough model for them, and therefore, in a sense, forcing them away from the Church, would suggest the heretical interpretation that you give. Um, yes, and let me say something about that. That is a naturalistic way of looking at it. If if a person who is baptized loses the faith, he loses it through his own fault. Because the faith is a supernatural uh, virtue infused by God. And the only thing that can destroy that supernatural virtue infused by God is the sin of infidelity, either apostasy or heresy, some form of infidelity. So even if you see scandalous clergy or you... Uh, see things in the church you don't like, that has nothing to do with that divine infused virtue that is in your soul. And the church has always taught that those who lose the faith lose it through their own fault. And so the church has, 
nothing to apologize uh, about concerning those divisions because it all concerned doctrine. It was not a question of whether, for example, Cardinal Cajetan raised his voice when he talked to Luther. I mean, that's just so perfectly absurd that, that we won't even think about it. Uh, you know, or, or that, you know, even worse, say that cardinals are running around with women and, and said to say it was true. Uh, but that had no uh, has no direct effect upon the faith. Yes, it does scandalize, and, and it, it decreases the fervor of the faithful. Absolutely, but it does not destroy the faith in anyone. If you lose the faith, it is through your own fault, and that is why you necessarily go to hell if you die impenitent in such a state. Thank you for that. We only have a couple more minutes left on this topic, but there is one other uh, expression in this decree, which I thought was worthy of, of uh, asking you a question about it. And that relates to this um, argument over doctrine in the, in the practice of ecumenism that the, uh, the decree also discusses in the second or third chapter. Uh, and that is about the idea of hierarchy of truths. It's one of the shibboleths, I suppose, of, of, of this document and, and something that people argue about because it's claimed in the document that this is a traditional idea. It's mentioned in paragraph 3, section 11, for those who are following on Twitter. The exact expression is this, quote, when comparing doctrines with one another, they should remember that in Catholic doctrine there exists, there exists an order of hierarchy of truths, since they vary in their relation to the foundation of the Christian faith. What do you think this is, is meant by this expression? Why has it been used here? And is it reducible to a consistent and orthodox uh, uh, it is a typically Protestant uh, statement. The uh, Protestants in the 19th century had this movement of the fundamental truths. See, Protestants have always ha had the problem of putting themselves back together. Uh, ever since the 16th century, they've been splitting up, and they've been trying to, to somehow put themselves back together. And ecumenism was therefore born in Protestantism long before it had anything to do with the Catholic Church centuries before the Catholic Church, there's been this movement in Protestantism to uh, create what they call the Unam Sanctum. That's among Protestant uh, theologians. They refer to the Unam Sanctum. That means the one big holy church, Unam Sanctum. It's putting it all together so that there could be one big Protestant church. And so one of the attempts to do that was to adhere to the fundamental truths. Well, of course, that flopped because then they start fighting about what are the fundamental truths. And this, this reference in this document is uh, definitely related to that, that there are certain basic truths that we really have to adhere to, and the others we can negotiate away. Uh, Leo XIII condemned that uh, uh, in one of his documents. I can't remember which one it is, but that's condemned. Thank you very much. I think uh, we probably ought to, to summarize that document and finish off and lead on to uh, a gaudium of space, which I think would follow, logically speaking, in terms of our discussion. But I wonder whether there was any co final comment you would like to make about the place of uh, Unitatis Redentratio in, in, in the Vatican Council and the work gone on since then. Well, the, ever since this, the, that document, ever since the Council, the, the main problem in the Church has been the, the extirpation of dogma. Dogma no longer exists. There is no uh, maintenance of dogma in religious houses or seminaries or universities. Pluralism is the new dogma. 
In other words, you could you could recite the whole creed, you could recite the anti-modernistic oath, you could say, I believe all of these things, but, you know, I, I'm a pluralist, uh, I see your side too. I, and then you, you kill all of the truth of the Catholic faith in that one sentence, in that one sentence of pluralism, that it's all true and it doesn't really make any difference, kills off the essence of the Catholic Church. Our Lord said to Pilate, I have come to witness unto the truth. And so the church comes to witness unto the truth. If you relativize truth, you kill it. Truth by its very nature dispels falsehood, dispels any kind of contradiction. And supernatural truth, revealed truth, does that all the more and does it to the tenth power. It dispels falsehood. And if you take that away from the Catholic Church by infusing ecumenism into it, you destroy the Catholic Church. That's my comment on that doctor, on that document. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Well, I think uh, we're at the bottom, a little bit past the bottom of the hour, so it's a good uh, point to remind those who are just tuning in that you are listening to Restoration Radio's jumbo-sized broadcast on Vatican II. Today, I'm Stephen Heiner, and I'm with Nicholas Wansbutter, Dr. Pierce Hugel, and our esteemed guest, Dr. Bishop, Dr. Bishop, Bishop Donald Sanborn. Um, Your Excellency, we have a couple of questions from Twitter that I want to address uh, before we move uh, move on to the next document. One we have, um, and I suppose these can be sort of short answers. Your Excellency, which of the Vatican II documents has the most blatant example of deviation from the Catholic faith? Ecumenism. So the one we just did? Yes. Um, the second question was, Monsignor Fenton revealed uh, John Courtney Murray and Jacques Maritain as condemned by the Holy Office in 1958, but this was never made public. Can you speak to this at all? I'm not familiar with that. Uh, it, it sounds, uh, I'd love to become familiar with that, but it's the first I've heard that. Hmm. Uh, John Courtney Murray was the author of the uh, document on religious liberty, and uh, the uh, was, uh, and uh, Maritain was the author of Integral Humanism, which is the spirit of Gaudium et Spes, and we'll talk about that shortly. But So, I mean, <laughs> if I could find the... The document of the Holy Office uh, that uh, uh, condemned those two, uh, I would be very happy. And if uh, that person could provide it, I'd love to see it. Okay, well, the challenge is out there to the, the questioner to bring forth some documentation. And if we get it here on Twitter, we'll share it with you, Your Excellency, and with the rest of our, our listeners. Um, so our next document, and we here in the spirit of Vatican II encourage active participation in the show. So if you'd like to follow <laughs> along with the documents, um, I'll be posting them on Twitter. I'm just now posting the next document, which is Gaudium et Spes, um, which Nicholas Wansbutter will be guiding us through with you, Your Excellency. Okay. Right, and uh, Gaudium et Spes, I think, um, Lord, you'd agree, is another very important document in the Vatican II, uh, the whole Vatican II Council, and it seems to me that it's the one that really lays out the the true spirit of the Council, if we we want to use that terminology. And I'm mindful of the fact that um, when Cardinal Ratzinger, in, uh, writing in the book uh, Principles of Catholic Theology, uh, referred to Gaudium et Spes. Um, his quote is uh, directly, if one is looking for a global diagnosis of the text, referring to Gaudium et Spes, 
One could say that it, along with the text on religious liberty and world religions, is a revision of the syllabus of Pius IX, a kind of counter-syllabus. So we have right from there one of the uh, the people with the authority over Vatican II saying that it's counter to the, the syllabus of errors. And I think that probably gives us a starting point of what this document's about. But what I'd first comment on is I found this document really difficult to read. It's over 70 pages, and um, my impression is that it scarcely says anything of substance over the 70 pages. It seems to do a lot of talking without actually saying anything. Yes, I'm surprised they didn't talk about dog catching in it. Uh, the, uh, they they mention every single aspect uh, of human activity and have something to say about it. And, and you know, except dog catching, I think it was left out. Um, the uh, but the this is a pivotal document um, in in Vatican II. Uh, there, the first. Uh, thing I would say about it is that over and over again in that document, if you take the time to read it, they are hammering the point that there is a new age of man. That man has changed. Man has changed. And in a very exaggerated way. That it is as if he's a new creature or a new species or something. Uh, all of these social communications and socialization and psychology and Throwing in in a, in a tremendous mix all of these uh, these new trends, uh, as if it has totally transformed man. That is one of the big themes of that, and that's very important for the modernists because the modernists say that you it was necessary to change the medieval church so that it could speak to modern man that modern man cannot listen to a medieval church, a, a church that is steeped in scholasticism, as they say, or all of the thinking uh, of of the Tridentine era. and It's just too old, and nobody's listening. And so this is, one, this is their major premise, so to speak, in the, in the argument, is that man is essentially new. And since the French Revolution, since the Enlightenment, uh, uh, everything's new. They didn't mention those things specifically, but you can see that, that everything they mention as new really proceeds from that era. And then the minor premise in their logic is, well, you know, we have to speak to this modern man, and, and we have to be somehow related to this modernized man. And so that's the second point of this document, is that the church is in the service of the world. And by that I mean not that you know it has to be charitable to the poor and all, which is of course true, but the, the, it has to link up with the, this modernized world, uh, with the internationalist scheme to perfect the world by means of what they call socialization, I would call socialism, internationalist socialism, uh, this general scheme to perfect the world by means of purely natural virtues. Uh, in some cases, not virtues, uh, what are perceived as virtues. And therefore, it, it, it's, it, it is an abandonment, as I see, of the church's true mission to sanctify souls. Hardly ever, I don't think the word soul is in there. 
there is no idea of of bringing human beings to the eternal salvation of snatching them from from the the pits of error and, and sin and bringing them to the knowledge of the truth in the Roman Catholic Church and by that and through the sacraments and and other means of sanctification of bringing them to eternal salvation rather you see a a, a Teilhardian idea of bringing the world into some perfect state uh, which is the the eschatological that means the the end of the world state of man which in their view uh is going to be just the perfect thing uh, the perfection of man without grace that this is the project of the modern world and it it enlists the church in that whole project and makes it the gospel and and it and tells catholics they have to go out and and involve themselves in this modern world and bring about this new transformation of the whole world according to socialist principles and various other modern principles. Uh, that's that, that is it's an apostasy uh, if if you think it out and in what it's saying. And the third thing that is very obvious in that is this constant constant reference to the dignity of man. The dignity of man in this document becomes the highest good of man. It becomes the basis of all morality. Uh, and so if something is not in, a, in accordance with the dignity of man, it's a sin. There is no reference to not being in accordance with the commandments of God. It, 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 the church is the upholder of the dignity of man and therefore the upholder of morality which contributes to the dignity of man. Now, that's interesting because uh, Benedict XVI said, for example, that the, in, his, in his underhanded permission for the use of condoms, said that the use of condoms is against the dignity of man. It's against the, the dignity of the person and the dignity of the, uh, the marital act and so forth. Um, and John Paul II constantly talked about the dignity of man. Uh, it really is a very central theme to to Vatican II and to all of the post-Vatican II magisterium. And I would say those three things, the, the, the idea that we are in a new age of man, and therefore we have to speak to this new man, and the church is at the service of the internationalist, socialist, dreamy world builders, uh, and uh, that the, we have to, that the church is the upholder of the dignity of man, as if it were the, the supreme moral principle, are the three major points of that document, and they are devastating points. Now, the idea of the dignity of man, is that something completely new, or is there some precedent for that in Catholic theology? No, it, it, certainly man has a dignity in as much as he is created in the image and likeness of God, and, and it says that. Uh, and he has a dignity in as much as he is redeemed by the blood of Christ, and and if he is in the state of sanctifying grace, he retains that dignity. Obviously, mortal sin gives no dignity to man, and his dignity is totally lost in mortal sin. And, you see, that's a supernatural view of the dignity of man. If you read that document, though, they're not talking about those things. They're talking about the dignity of man according to his nature, that, that according to the, the demands and, and the, the decency of nature, what is in accordance with his nature. 
the whole document is naturalistic, and uh, it, it is um, uh, it is not a, a something that is imbued with a supernatural spirit and any kind of supernatural treatment of the dignity of man. And the dignity of man, furthermore, has never been the norm of morality. <laughs> The commandments of God are the norm of morality, not the dignity of man. It's very accidental. And the uh, one of the difficulties I think with uh, Gaudium et Spes is it's hard to find an exact line that I can point out to you as Dr. Hugel did with um, the previous document where we can look at it and say is this radical or not because they don't seem to have any clear statements in the document and it's more of one that you need to take the the document as a whole is that uh and the document as a whole uh th- those are the things that uh uh come off the page uh for example uh, uh for example it it enlists catholics in uh the uh forming a new one world order it says this is uh, number 82 this goal undoubtedly requires the establishment of some universal public authority acknowledged as such by all and endowed with effective power to safeguard on the behalf of all security, regard for justice, and respect for rights. Now that is a that is a one-world government with a, a police power and a military power to enforce itself. Um, <clears throat> uh, so uh there are many many texts in it that you could uh, refer to that definitely exemplify what i have stated about it <clears throat> um it, it contains also you know certain references to uh uh like respecting the beliefs of others which of course is a uh, is, this is number number let's see 73 in addition men are learning more every day to re- respect the opinions and religious beliefs of others now we cannot respect heresy we might uh be charitable to a person who is in heresy but we cannot respect heresy because heresy is a mortal sin it's one of the gravest mortal sins in the whole book and we cannot respect in that sense the religious beliefs of others if they are in heresy or apostasy or or some uh, you know they they are not even baptized uh there is nothing no. to respect there because they are they they are in error um so it, it, you know it would uh, probably be beyond our ability in this interview to to go through the the various statements but there are many supporting statements to what i have said concerning it <clears throat> right well here's one statement that i I'd put out because uh, we were talking about the dignity of the human person, and this seems to be, uh, uh, they have a whole chapter just on the dignity of the human person, aside from it being noted elsewhere, and it's chapter one. So again, that's uh, further solidifying the point that that this is the key to, to this document. And the first sentence under uh, chapter one, the dignity of the human person, it's number 12 on the version that I'm looking at on the Vatican website, so it says, according to the almost unanimous opinion of believers and unbelievers alike, all things on earth should be related to man as their center and crown. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is that is very typical. The 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 man man center, uh, the man as the center of all creation, and 
it was very typical of the Renaissance. It, it's all the new thinking that the church took a very strong stance against. And it has sort of broken down the, the doors of the church and has come in as a flood with this document. Uh, in uh, number 55, it says, This truth grows clearer if we consider how the world is becoming unified and how we have the duty to build a better world based upon truth and justice. Nothing about the Catholic faith. Thus we are witness, witnesses of the birth of a new humanism, one in which man is defined, first of all, by his responsibility toward his brothers and toward history. Now, man, where is God in that? <laughs> that right. sounds like the the manual for becoming a Freemason. And, I mean, and beyond that, is, is it not... It strikes me as an absurd uh, naivete about... The, the circumstances of the modern world, even back in the 1960s, I'd say things have gotten a lot worse since the 60s. But like, would you would you agree with that assessment? That it's just incredibly naive to say that, that this type of this is what's developing in the world at that time. Uh, naive in what sense? In other words, to uh, well, it was naive well, for them the, not to see these developments as hostile to the Catholic religion. Right. Uh, the Catholic Church has always considered these elements as hostile, and and modernism, the condemnation of modernism by Pius X, was sort of the final word on this. The condemnation uh, uh, on uh, in the syllabus of the various modern movements and and Quanta Cura and Mirari Vos and all, you can see and all of the encyclicals of Leo the Thirteenth and the encyclicals of Pius the Eleventh and Pius the Twelfth, they are constantly setting up a greater bulwark uh, against these ideas and are condemning these ideas and are protecting the, the Catholic faithful from these things. For example, in this country before the Council, you had a Catholic association of everything, a Catholic association of lawyers, of doctors, of, of journalists, of this and that, everything, uh, perhaps dog catchers too. The, the Catholic Church in this country wanted to isolate Catholics from the bad influences of the modern world. And so you had the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization. Uh, the, I remember in, in my school in the 1960s, as late as in my high school in the 1960s, we were not for, permitted to play basketball games with public schools. We could only play the Catholic League because we were not supposed to have contact with the bad influence of the modern world. Uh, and that was uh, always the stance of Catholicism. And in so doing, Catholicism flourished. When Pius XII died in 1958, the Catholic Church was in excellent condition because precisely it had protected its faithful from these evil influences. And here we are, about 60 years after Pius XII died, and it is an absolute shambles. Mm -hmm. And it is all from this new spirit of opening windows and doors and various other things to this all of this stuff which is contrary to Catholic teaching. The, 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 uh, these modernists think that modern man is going to listen to the Catholic Church if you put modern lipstick on her, if you fix her up and make her look modern, that they're all going to turn their heads and look at her. 
I mean, I'm sorry to put it that way, but that's what Vatican II tried to do. That we, the, right. the traditional faith and traditional church, we can be modern just like you, and, and we'll, we're with you. We're side by side with you in forming this internationalist new world order and, and the dignity of man and all of this other stuff. And therefore, you're going to accept us, and we're going to be uh, uh, talking to modern man. Uh, this is the mind of all of those people. Cardinal Ratzinger, or Ra uh, Father Ratzinger at the time, uh, he said that it, modern man cannot relate to going into a church and finding God in a tabernacle. That's in one of his works. Mm -hmm. Ridiculing the idea of the reservation of the Blessed Sacrament and making a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. But do you see where he's coming from? Is that we cannot say that to modern man. We can't say this to these people imbued with the Enlightenment and the French Revolution and socialism. We can't say right. They won't listen to us if we say that. If we say that God is present in the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And that's the mentality of these modernists. And you have to understand that in order to understand Vatican II. Yes, and I think actually it, it, I, we've run out of time, so I'm going to have to sum up here. But I just want to make the point uh, quickly that that's something where you can find direct quotes uh, that directly contradict a prior practice or teaching of the churches. Uh, Gaudium says explicitly at a number of points condemns this idea. I, I think implicitly condemns the idea that you were just speaking about, my Lord, about uh, keeping oneself separated from the corruption of the world and. Just as one example, under number 21, speaking about atheism, they say that while rejecting atheism, uh, root and branch the church sincerely professes that all men, believers, unbelievers alike, ought to work together, etc., etc., and it says that this cannot be realized, however, apart from sincere and prudent dialogue. This is that dialogue we have to discuss. Error yeah. has to discuss truth with, with the church in order for us to somehow reach the betterment of society. And then in that same paragraph goes on to condemn state authorities making a distinction between believers and unbelievers. And I think we'll be able to get into that again when we... Uh, yes, there's talk more to say uh, about this, so later. when you come back, let me know. Right. So uh, we'll, we'll I think we can come back to that um, point a bit with Dignitati Tumane, but uh, just to sum up, uh, we've been speaking for the last 20 minutes about Gaudium et Spes, uh, Pastoral Constitution of the Church, and I think we've established that it's um, it's a difficult-to-pin down document uh, in that it's very lengthy and very wordy without saying a lot of substance, but within that, you, you can find clearly uh, giving the direction of this openness to the world and trying to put a, a modern face on the Church to that this is somehow going to... Um, uh, uh, assist in uh, evangelical efforts, and that this document, perhaps more than others, uh, is responsible for the fruits that we see in the utter disaster that is the situation in the church and the world today. Yes, and by the way, if we have time, do you need to break or something, or do, can I say something in, in about You, you can finish your point, Your Excellency. Yes, this is Maritain. Maritain, uh, this is integral humanism. Maritain's idea of integral humanism was that humanism needs a Christian face. And we need to uh, join forces with the, the new humanism uh, with Christianity and sort of complement uh, humanism with Christianity. And Paul VI was a uh, 
devout disciple of Maritain. They were personal friends. And uh, it is of no wonder that Paul VI you know, was very much involved in this document, and he was. By the way, this document, if, if you look at its pedigree, it has all of the worst modernists as the contributors. I don't know who actually wrote it. But in researching the document, the names are the, <laughs> the, the cardinal modernists of the time. And, and Fall of Six was very, very much interested in this document. Uh, and it's, it's Maritain. It, it is uh, fix up the church to look modern, and the modern world will love you. Oh, I think the point is very well taken, Your Excellency. I, I think a lot of people don't know enough about Maritain. I think there's that, that orthodox period he had, and then people don't know he just sort of wandered off uh, into the favor of Paul VI and, and much to everyone else's um, de-edification, I might, I might say. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, we or have been listening, you are listening to Restoration Radio. I'm one of your co-hosts, Stephen Heiner, um, along with Nicholas Wansbutter and Pierre Hugel. We're joined today by Bishop Donald Sanborn, and you, you'll hear Nicholas and Pierce both referring to His Excellency as either me Lord or uh, your Lordship or my Lord. Um, and this is from those terrible, horrible days when we had hierarchy, and there were titles that corresponded. So a bishop would correspond to a marquis, an earl, a viscount, a baron, whereas let's say an archbishop would correspond to a duke, and that's why you would refer to an archbishop as your grace instead of uh, my Lord. Uh, and so you'll hear in our Commonwealth, uh, United Kingdom, and American hosts today uh, a panoply of different ways of addressing um, the bishop. Uh, again, today our show was um, is being sponsored, before we move on to our next document, it's being sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. Um, and I'm going to read the next ad. Ever since the Second Vatican Council and the new Mass of Paul VI, Catholics have seen the most horrendous sacrileges in their churches. Recovated buildings, desecrated sanctuaries, hideous tabernacles, black altars, plastic tables. Since Vatican II, Catholics have seen it all in their very own parishes around the globe. Role-playing, soccer liturgies, clowns and puppets, balloons, Halloween costumes, liturgical dancing, disco masses, half-naked participants, Freemasons wearing aprons, pornography shown from the pulpit, the priest riding into the sanctuary on a motorcycle, there is barely an aberration the Novus Ordo Church has not already thought of, performed, approved, or silently tolerated. But there is one website that monitors and exposes it all, Novus Ordo Watch. To learn the truth about the Vatican II Church and how it differs from the Catholic Church, log on to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org, where the counterfeit church, with its false teachings and impious practices, have been exposed since 2002. I have the next document, Your Excellency, and it's Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church. Sounds very official and very serious. Mm -hmm. And um, humorously, or perhaps, you know, a dark humor, uh, there is no dogmatic definition located within Lumen Gentium. It uses that language, that construct that we're familiar with, dogmatic constitution, but this, a lot of commentaries that I read um, on this document in preparation for the show refer to this document as a sort of charter for the council that once the church rediscovered herself for the modern world, she was then able to talk about laity, bishops, etc. So this document in its own way is sort of a charter. And I thought it might be helpful to read both what an alleged Catholic and a, an admitted Protestant have to say about the document. Um, 
we have uh, Avery Dulles, um, who uh, a Jesuit, uh, who commented that the first edition of the schema from 1962, quote, resembled the standard treatise on the church as found, for example, in most of the theological manuals published between the two world wars. Mm-hmm. Influenced by centuries of anti-Protestant polemics, the writers of this period placed heavy emphasis on the hierarchical and juridical aspects of the church, including the supremacy of the Pope. That's just terrible. Oh. Uh, and of course, this, this, is, uh, this is something to be avoided. We hear the Protestant comment on this exact same document, um, a gentleman named Albert Utler, O-U-T-L-E-R. He says, Protestants and Anglicans who would have braced themselves defiantly before new animus, an, 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 anathemas in the vein of Trent will find little here that offends and much that edifies. Mm-hmm. Roman Catholics will find in this constitution a Magna Carta that will reshape many of their conventional notions about the Church in her nature and mission, and that will furnish both inspiration and direction for their further experimentation and developments in the post-conciliar period that now begins. Um, of course, a Protestant giving a, a Catholic um, you know, uh, news that now they'll be able to experiment with their church. I'm sure he's quite excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, before we, and one last thing before we dive into the document, Your Excellency, this vote on the final schema went 2,151, four, five against. And I looked for the names of those five bishops um, so I could see if they wrote anything else, but there's, there's at least five men who knew what was going on in this document. But it's deplorable that there are only five. <laughs> five out of 2,000, right? Yes. Um, chapter 1, Section 3, Paragraph 1, refers to the Church as mystery. Um, and I, I'm not trying to oversimplify, again, as in the vein of uh, Dr. Hugel when he was asking about this, is that something that we traditionally understand about the Church? Do we traditionally understand the Church as a mystery, and what does that mean? The traditional theology of the Church and the traditional dogma concerning the Church never refer to it as a mystery. Uh, the, however, the modernists always <laughs> refer to it as a mystery because the modernist uh, uh, wants to detach the notion of structure from the Catholic Church, actually from the Church of Christ, uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the, the that it is a corporate structure is something absolutely anathema to the modernist. So they had to give it names. Now, it's not to say that the Church has supernatural mysteries concerning it. I mean, the, the mystery of grace and the mystery of the priesthood, and all of those are supernatural dogmas uh, that are very intimately involved with the church the very nature of the church itself is is a supernatural dogma and is a mystery that is we don't completely understand it and, and, and sure that's true but here it is a catchword for the modernist idea of a structureless church of christ which achieves structure only in certain Human ways, uh, and we'll we'll talk about that momentarily uh, as soon as you bring it up. 
that that is the key to this document that the church of christ is an invisible spiritual thing uh, that is a mystery quote unquote and then there's the catholic church which is a structure the as you pointed out the church of christ what is that very notoriously and perhaps most frequently commented on um, we're going to find in chapter 1, section 8, paragraph 2, um, the subsistit in um, passage. And I, because I don't want to just read one sentence, I'm going to read the whole paragraph. Mm -hmm. um, this is the one church of Christ, which in the creed is professed as one holy Catholic and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, commissioned Peter to shepherd and him and the other apostles to extend and direct with authority, which he erected for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. Mm -hmm. This church, constituted and organized in the world as a society, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him, although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of its visible structure these elements as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ are forces impelling toward Catholic unity. There's a lot here, Your Excellency, so I want to start with focusing on the phrase subsists in, and what, what does that mean? Can we interpret it in an orthodox manner? Um, is that normal to have to force yourself to interpret something in, in, a, in an orthodox manner within a Catholic document? Obviously not. Again, the councils are meant to clarify, not to confuse. And uh, the uh, at, at very best, I mean, the very best interpretation you could give to this is that it it what, what does it mean? Uh, it, it, who knows what it means? Uh, subsisted in. What do you mean by that? That's the very best you could give to it. It, it is obscure. Uh, however, as I said, they meant a single thing by it. And if you look into the history of that document and the discussion concerning subsisted in, they purposely did not want to use the word est, which means in, or excuse me, which means is, the, the which Pius XII used in his document concerning the church. Was this Mystici Corporis, Your Excellency? Yes, and identifying the mystical body of Christ with the Roman Catholic Church, making absolutely no uh, distinctions. And they wanted to avoid that, the, the theologians that, that contributed to this, and they proposed the subsisted in precisely to avoid the absolute identification between the Church of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church. That said, that we understand what they mean, and that is that the Church of Christ is bigger than the Roman Catholic Church, and that it does not have a visible structure itself, but it subsists in a visible structure. That is, it takes on an existence in, if you understand subsist in its traditional terminology, uh, it takes on an existence in something else, that being the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, this interpretation is confirmed by the uh, by Dominus Jesus of Benedict XVI. Uh, well, uh, John Paul II, but Benedict wrote it when he was Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, the 
saying that the Eastern churches, that means the Eastern schismatic groups, are particular churches. And that means that they are part of the Church of Christ, uh, that they... Uh, uh, but they don't have the fullness. That's what that's what that document says. But they are particular churches, and the traditional teaching concerning particular churches are dioceses that are communion with Rome. That is that is a particular church. When when Benedict or Ratzinger at the time uh, said that they are particular churches and that uh, they have uh, partial communion with the. Uh, Catholic uh, with, with the uh, Catholic Church, yes, and they are they are part of the Church of Christ, and uh, that when they have the Eucharist, the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church is present in them in all of its essential aspects. That's a, a quote from that document. You see that this is exactly what Lumen Gentium meant. I mean, there is an authentic interpretation of of the ecclesiology of Lumen Gentium. My Lord, I, I also read uh, in the answer to the main objections to Dominus Jesus when Benedict XVI, so-called, uh, attempted to clarify exactly what he said in that document. And I'm just quoting from that. It says, and this is an attempt to prove that it is a traditional idea we must bear in mind, quote, the concept expressed by is, to be, is far broader than that expressed by to subsist. To subsist is a very precise way of being. That is, to be as a subject which exists in itself. Thus, the Council Fathers meant to say that the being of the Church as such is a broader entity than the Roman Catholic Church, but within the latter it acquires, in an incomparable way, the character of a true and proper subject, i.e., the Church of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church are not the same thing. Right. Yes. It's clear. Precisely, yes. And, and uh, Ratzinger was, again, one of the prime movers of Lumen Gentium. Um, he... Um, uh, he was very much involved in that document, uh, and both his personal reflections on it are very important, and his uh, then John Paul II's promulgation of Dominus Jesus is also uh, very important uh, and, and decisive in the interpretation of that document. And so it is no, uh, you know, like uh, it's not a question of excited traditionalists who are are saying that that document is false. And as it stands, and in accordance with what Ratzinger himself said about it, uh, it's heretical. And why is it heretical? Because it is contrary to the traditional teaching of one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is in, which is in the Nicene Creed, and uh, it is contrary to the always understood meaning of that. And Pius X was very clear uh, in the anti-modernist oath that had to be taken, that the dogmas have to be understood in the sense that the Church has always understood them. And what is typically modernist is to take the shell of the doctrine, to take the wording of the doctrine and say, oh yes, I agree with that, but here's a new meaning for it. And so this document is heretical because it corrupts the traditional meaning of one holy Catholic and apostolic Church. And and as I as I said, Your Excellency, there's this, these nods to other documents. So we covered Insatis Red Integratio to start, and you'll see the nod to that document here within this paragraph where it says, although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of its visible structure, these elements as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ are forces impelling toward Catholic unity, i.e. we don't have Catholic unity yet. 
And of course, that could be understood in its own orthodox way if you try really hard, <laughs> like with some CC did. Well, but if you, yeah, if you uh, look yes. at this, these notions of the exile church, the pilgrim church, we're working towards a unity. We will only get there at the end, but if we try really hard, um, can you comment a bit more on this, this notion of pilgrim exile church? And is that a traditional understanding? And if, if so, how have we understood it traditionally? Well, the Pilgrim Church, and also People of God, which was another big theme in there, was a- another modernist way in which to destructuralize the church and to detridentinize it. That means to take it out of the Tridentine period. Uh, and, you know, in a Pilgrim Church, uh, you walk from place to place, and uh, things are different. And, uh, you know, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth compared it to a cruise, an uh, anchorage. And as, as right, you can have a substantial anchorage here. We're going to stay yeah. here for a couple of days. Yes, and it's like a cruise in the Caribbean where you pull into this little island, you, you go off and you buy the trinkets of this little island, which are probably <laughs> made in China, and, and then you get back on the boat. The boat remains the same, so you have continuity because the, the boat remains the same, but you're going from place to place and you have different anchorages. So in a pilgrim church... The church is constantly changing and moving, and 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 what you are today, you won't be tomorrow. Uh, Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger, said that in uh, 1999, I think it was, about the papacy. He said, you know, we don't know what the papacy will become. We have no idea what the papacy will become. He said that in a speech. Yes, it's still, it's still evolving, right? Yes, it's still evolving. So, Speak, so the, the continuity the... for them is simply, simply a continuity of structure. That's all. Well, to take to, to piggyback onto that, Your Excellency, you talk about this evolving notion. So too, famously, this document needed a nota previa because its explanation of collegiality was so troublesome because it's evolving that the bishops share in the infallibility of the pope when they're with him in a council, um, and there had to be another document added onto Lumen Gentium to satisfy, I suppose, the, the Cardinal Ottaviani types who said, this is, this is heretical, you can't say this. Well, let me correct you on that. The, the bishops do share in his infallibility in a general council, in an ecumenical council. But the point is, and, and what was troubling, was the way that was worded in the, in the document, was that they have an authority apart from him, that the College of Bishops exists as a subject, and it even says is the subject of the supreme authority of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. That means uh, the the uh, the Catholic Church is ruled by a college. Now it just got finished saying the Pope is the head of the Church, uh, because you always get a sandwich in in Vatican II, <laughs> you know, yeah. the previous paragraph. But the that that truth about the Pope does not redeem the heresy about the bishops. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any less heretical what you've just said about the bishops. Right, and, and it's the setup for the national conferences, is it not? Oh yes, definitely. That would come about. But you see that it's a whole new ecclesiology that you have. See, the traditional ecclesiology is that the Pope has all of the power received from Christ. The bishops have power over their flocks, their dioceses, from Christ, but through the Pope. That's Pius XII. From Christ, but through the Pope. So they are truly the rulers of their dioceses by the power of Christ, but it's through the Pope. 
And the only time they have a uh, a shared supreme power with the pro with the pope is in a, an ecumenical council. Uh, but their their power there again flows from the pope, uh, and and is powered by the pope, so to speak. They are nothing without him. They have no guarantee of infallibility without him. They could all err without him. And that's the traditional ecclesiology. But in this new ecclesiology, when you're consecrated a bishop, you become part of this college, and you assume authority over the whole church in a collective way. So that, that changes the church from a, the, the monarchy uh, that Christ founded into a, a representative uh, sort of uh, republican government. Uh, and this is all done for the sake of ecumenism. Because as Paul VI said, the biggest obstacle to ecumenism is the papacy. So just as the mass had to go, so also the papacy had to go. And this this gives Protestants a, a way of of uh, seeing the papacy as reduced. Mm. Uh, and that's why you know people got really started to wring their hands over this one. And they did this nota previa, which oddly came at the end, even though it says a <laughs> a previous note, something that's right. supposed to come first. They put it at the end, and uh, they uh, they tried to fix it up. I I don't think that they fixed it up sufficiently. Uh, I mean, I don't see. But the point is that the nota previa uh, does not belong to the council. The document stands without it. And it was only something published by Cardinal Felici. You know, as as this note that was spread around by Cardinal Felici, it has no papal authority behind it. It it has no conciliar authority behind it. It's a casual explanation. That's all it is. And and that was pointed out by, because I think Ratzinger, uh, the story, I think Ratzinger was upset about it, and I think Kung said, don't worry about it. Uh, it doesn't belong to the council document, and that's true. It is not promulgated. <laughs> so some people could still be mollified by it, but it doesn't affect the the document right. itself. Right. It's a sugar coating to swallow the document. And there's more here to this document, Your Excellency, but we have to move on. We've got three more documents to cover. Thank you for continuing to just answer all of our questions without taking a break. We're all obviously taking breaks in between uh, the the various documents that we're handling, but you have to keep going. Um, I'm going to uh, give you one of our questions from Twitter um, before we uh, move on to our next document. For those of you who are just joining us, um, today's Restoration Radio episode is on the Second Vatican Council. We're halfway through. We've dealt with Unitatis Red Integratio, um, Gaudium et Spes, and Lumen Gentium. The next document we'll be talking about is Nostra Aetate, and our show today has been brought to you by Novus Ordo Watch. The question, Your Excellency, is, is the Church a sacrament? Well, in the traditional theology and dogma of the Catholic Church, that never has been said. It was cooked up by Karl Rahner and by other modernist theologians. Uh, And again, it's one of those other attempts to disassociate the church from structure and call it by something different, uh, something invisible. Like communion was another big one. The church is a communion, and that is the new ecclesiology. The church of Christ is a communion. And uh, and so sacrament, uh, 
I mean, could you make an argument that it that analogically it is a sign that gives grace? I think you could say that. You know, I, I don't think it offends any any Catholic theology to say that. But the point is it, that it it comes with baggage that term, and the baggage is to to present the church the church as something that is not absolutely identified with the structure of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that's, uh, but I wouldn't call it heretical, or, or you know, I mean, it's just a, a, a term of the new theology. So. No, I, I think uh, your point's well taken, Your Excellency. It goes back to the people of God, you know, Pilgrim Church. You know, the Church is a mystery. The Church is a sacrament, and all of these these weasel words that allow you to do different things. Yes, and, um, and the the central heresy of this document, though, is the separation of the Church of Christ from the Roman Catholic Church as two different entities in the sense that they are not absolutely the same thing and that the Church of Christ is broader than the Roman Catholic Church. That is uh, a heresy. It is against the creed. That's very important to understand that. And every time you see them in the Council and the, uh, the uh, John Paul II and so forth referring to the Church without saying the Catholic Church, they are referring to the Church of Christ, this broad, invisible thing that all of these heretics and schismatics belong to as particular churches in imperfect communion. That's what they're referring to when they say the Church. If they say the Catholic Church, then they're, they're, they're talking about uh, just the, uh, the, the structure. And that, was, uh, that heresy was made clear in the New Code of Canon Law in 1983, which made the distinction between, in the Latin, Christi Fideles and Christi Fideles Catholici. In English, Christ's faithful and Christ's Catholic faithful. You have never seen that in the history of the Church, any distinction like that. Not ever. Yes. And, and it shows that in certain cases it's talking about all Christians in general, that is, those who all belong to the Church of Christ, and in certain other cases, only the Catholic Christians. That distinction is heretical. And Pius XII said that there, there, you cannot be a Christian unless you are Catholic. Well, Your Excellency, you're just not being fair. I mean, the Code of Canon Law is one of the fruits of the new springtime. I mean, right. I think you just you need you need to you need to understand it in a special way. Yeah, um, I have to get with it. <laughs> you have to get with it, and and with that, I'm going to uh, to hand the ball to uh, Pierre's um, Dr. Hugel, who's going to talk about Nostra Aetate. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen, and uh, thank you, Your Excellency, and uh, thanks once again for for your great stamina in dealing with all of these uh, documents and our probings and questions. Right at the very beginning of the program, we were looking at the um, decree on ecumenism, uh, Unitatis Red Integratio. Uh, now we're going to look at Nostra Aetate, which is promulgated about a year afterwards, 28th of October 1965, and it's called in English the Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religions. Uh, the idea being that we now need to talk about how um, the Church relates to other religions which don't have their origin in Christ in the way that those heretical and schismatic groups that are discussed in Unitatis Red Integratio do. One of the things I noticed in, in reading the document is it's one of those ones where there's that kind of wooliness of an, an oddity of expression which makes it very difficult sometimes to to get at what it is they're really trying to do. Yeah. I imagine that has something to do with the novelty of the subject. 
I just wanted to yeah, absolutely indeed. I wanted to go right in the very beginning and talk about something which I noticed that's odd um, at the start. It's interesting that in positing the unity of man, which is of course uh, what's behind this this whole uh, document, and, and we're, le- we're dealing with uh, Dignitatis Humanae next, uh, they did, they cite not the origin story of Genesis, but Acts seventeen twenty six, which suggests not only that they distrust the traditional account. But also because it's followed by this strange uh, quotation, verse 17 of Acts 17, that they should seek God, if happily they may feel after him or find him, although he be not far from every one of us. That's from the Dowie Reams translation. I thought this was interesting because it's not difficult to see how a modernist might interpret this line as a scriptural sanction of the origin of religion in a form of sensibility, which is the, the, the very core of the modernist heresy. We are united then, so the document suggests, because, quote, because all share a common destiny, namely God, end quote. In itself, this seemed to be uh, interpretable in a perfectly orthodox manner, but it also implies that all religions themselves contain this striving towards God, which is appears to be positive, in a sense, on scriptural authority. Is that a fair assessment, do you think, my lord? Uh, yes, it's one of the main themes of modernism, if you read Pashendi, is that... Uh, there is uh, God is not merely naturally present to, to all things, uh, which is of course true, but that He is supernaturally present in all people, apart from grace. Uh, Saint Pius X was very clear about that because he said, you know, if you're talking about grace, of course He's present by grace, but if you're removing grace from that, and these modernists are. This presence of God in all, and this speaking of God in all men, and so forth, is is a very serious error. Uh, and but it's at the bottom of, of modernism. It's at the bottom of uh, the new apologetics. Man has this need for God, and and uh, and you know, you, you, I don't want to say that. Uh, uh, I don't want to say too much here, in the sense it is true that naturally speaking, man can know God through reason, uh, that he has a, a natural longing for God uh, to know him, to serve him, he wants to be good. That's all true in the natural order. Uh, and so, I mean, if that's all they mean, uh, then that then it's all true. But it is wrong, and very seriously wrong, and, and it confuses the supernatural and natural orders to say that God is speaking supernaturally to all men and is present supernaturally in all men, apart from grace. That's a very serious error. It's condemned by St. Pius X. Yeah. I mean, I think a little later we get another thing which looks very suspicious in terms of heresy, because we read in the same opening section these words, quote, men look to their different religions for an answer to the unsolved riddles of human existence. Now, this might be criticized because it implies that these riddles have remained unsolved, whereas we know that the Catholic Church actually has the answer. But I wondered whether this could actually be taken in a a harmless sense, that all men simply seek answers to the same riddles in their different religions. Uh, which is I think you could. Uh, you know, uh, I think it would. You would be hard pressed to say that they meant that the Catholic faith did not solve those riddles. I, I don't really think they meant to say that. I, I think they'd be saying too much about the document. I don't think there's any evidence for that. I, I think that they're saying that 
to those people, life is a riddle, and they look to vari- their various religions to solve the riddle. I, I don't think there's really anything wrong with that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that was my feeling, too. I, the, next, the text then goes on to just talk about some of the specific religions that it's dealing with. Um, rather than being outrightly heretical, at least as far as I can tell, the descriptions of Hinduism and Buddhism and other such religions in positive terms that contrast very strongly with the way in which previous ecclesiastical documents have described them seem, to me, simply erroneous or confused or wrong. Is the implied openness to what is positive in seeking after the good in, in these different religions enough to let these errors of expression off the hook, since we're talking here again about merely differences in perspective rather than actual the teaching yes, of the church? In that context, it, it's definitely modernist uh, to see uh, value in those religions. Uh, a religion can have the truth in, in two ways. One, it can have natural truths that it has deduced through reason. Another way is by borrowing or stealing truths from the Catholic faith. Those are the two ways in which it can arrive at truth. But that is, in all cases, mixed in with error, and in some cases, very serious error. And therefore, to say that there are, you know, you find certain truths in in these false religions uh, is, well, of course you do. You find in practically any religion, you're going to find some truth. Uh, but it does not enhance them as religions, or it does not... <laughs> they're false religions. It's the wrong way. If you follow those religions in, say, you go to hell, and in itself you go to hell, it's only through invincible ignorance that you could be excused from your sin of infidelity. But you are on the path to hell. You are, on, you are in a crashing plane or a sinking ship. I mean, there, any false religion is a means of damnation. It is not a means of salvation. It has all the means at its, at its disposal to drag you to hell. I mean, because it's false. Uh, it is not a path to God. You know, so, you know, those paragraphs are indicative of a modernist spirit about these things, that there's a certain value in these religions. Uh, there, there is no value in these religions. So what comes up in the following paragraphs is therefore much more difficult to read uh, in an orthodox manner, because we read there this, that the Church, quote, rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these religions. She should, therefore, quote, acknowledge, preserve, and encourage the spiritual and moral truths found in them. Now, traditionists have found this as a refusal of the idea of active conversion. But could, nevertheless, we make an argument that what we're here talking about is a kind of active use of old elements in a culture? that is in the process of being converted. And I was thinking of, you know, St. Augustine of Canterbury constantly writing letters to St. Gregory, um, asking, you know, how to, to approach uh, the Anglo-Saxon converts he was trying to make, and, and, and Gregory telling him, well, you, you know, you can set up churches in the old temples and so on. Is this just about transition from, the, from, from a paganism to, to Catholic faith and employing old elements, reapplying them in a Catholic sense, or is something else going on? I think that in the context uh, of Vatican II and the context of ecumenism, uh, I think that it must be read in an unorthodox way. Uh, I don't think uh, we're talking about merely trying to capitalize on what is true in the various religions that that the missionaries encounter. And what you said is absolutely correct. The, The Church has always bent over backwards to try to salvage what it could from those religions uh, and uh, I, th- I mean that's supposedly the origin of the Christmas tree that the Germans were worshipping trees and St. Boniface cut one down 
to prove to them that it was not divine, and that uh, he made it the symbol of Christ. You see, so um, the uh, I mean, I don't know if that is true, but that that leaves us in story. But you know, there, there are many cases in the history of the Catholic Church uh, in which the the Church tries to, as much as possible salvage what is, what is in their various beliefs, and really there's no argument about that. But here, uh, and again with the interpretation of the praxis, that is the practice, the ecumenical practice that has gone on since the Council, I think this takes on a whole new meaning, that these uh, religions are in the modernist sense holy, that they, uh, while they might have certain elements of error in them, Nevertheless, they are sanctifying religions, and they are paths to God in their own way. And although they're not ecclesial communities and, and so forth, they don't have baptism, uh, they uh, nevertheless have a spiritual value. Uh, all of the meetings, uh, the ecumenical meetings with Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims uh, have, uh, have really communicated that message. I suppose all the, the, the three Assisi meetings are, as you say, the praxis, the fruit of, of these speculations in this document. Yes, yes. And the official practice, I mean, this is not some sort of uh, renegade priest doing this. These are official acts. It's the spirit of Assisi that was uh, that was so praised by Benedict XVI uh, and when he redid the Assisi 25 years later. Uh, and these are official acts, and they give credibility to the unorthodox interpretation that we are giving to this document. Yeah. I remember, my lord, when I was converting originally to the Novus Ordo, uh, and it was re going through the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, that I started to come across things that just didn't sound quite right. And I remember one of the things uh, that we talked about in our, uh, our CIA classes, our um, right for the Christian initiation of adults, yes. Uh, was the fact that you know the church has great respect for our Muslim brethren? You know their religion is almost identical to us, and a few minor points like the fact that they don't believe that Christ was God, uh, and a few things like that, uh, which yes, sounds kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we worship the same God. It, it says in section three, the church has a high regard for Muslims, and they in fact quote a letter of Gregory the Seventh to uh, Ansir Nasir, the king of Mauritania. Uh, to pr prove this, is this indeed purely not quite there, or are they actually onto something? Is there a, a long tradition of assuming that there's a relationship with Islam? No, I checked that. Uh, it, uh, it took me a long time to check that reference in Gregory the Seventh. Uh, it was a letter to this some sort of potentate in North Africa. Uh, in which he was trying to convince him to enter into a type of uh, alliance with the Europeans and the, the uh, Catholics in Europe to overcome some of the tribes to the south who were <coughs> disturbing something, and I forget what it was, but they were being nasty, and he wanted this sultan or whatever he was to enter into a relationship with the, uh, a type of military or, uh, alliance. Uh, against these uh, troublesome tribes, and he cited as a motive for entering into this relationship that we worship one God. Mm. Now, unum deum, I looked at it in Latin. I mean, it, it, I checked this out. So, the, you know, there is a big difference between worshiping one God 
and worshiping one and the same God. True. Uh, you know, it would be like saying, we both have dogs. You know, we both have a dog. You have one dog. I have one dog. But it's not the same dog. You see, it, it, and, and I think Gregory was saying, well, we have something in common. At least we're not polytheists like these tribes are. And we worship one God. Well, you know, they tried to make great hay of that. Uh, Gregory the Seventh. You couldn't get somebody better than Gregory the Seventh to say that we are worshiping the same God. <laughs> that 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 is sterling silver as far as a reference. So, but it really he he was not he did not say unum eudemque deum. He said we both worship one God, and he was uh, in contrast to polytheists and. Um, so you know, it really is nothing for them. Uh, the uh, obviously we do not worship the same God because the God that we worship has a son, and the God that they worship does not have a son. So it could not possibly be the same God. If if I know a Mr. Smith, and and you know a Mr. Smith, and the one that I know has a son, and the one that you know does not have a son, I would say, well, they, these are not the same people then. To you know, to say that you know, two two religions are monotheistic does not mean that it's the same God. God has certain attributes, and unless you concur in all of those attributes, uh, you do not worship the same God. It's something like this new technology with the face. Every face, has, you know, they can put certain points on every face, and if one of those points is off, they would say, "Well, this is not the same person because these points do not line up exactly." And so also, if all of the attributes of God do not line up exactly between two religions, you would have to say that there are two different gods there. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, they, they deal very briefly with Islam then, and then they move on to... Uh, and I must say, when reading, reading uh, the document on the relations with Christians and Jews, it, it seems to stay at the level of generalities. It doesn't seem to be anything which is objectively wrong uh, here. It's just the, the various things they don't talk about. So they say some things, but they miss out other things. And maybe that's another feature uh, of the documents generally that, that we, we could talk about, what they don't say and what they do say. Yes, yes. It's um, yeah, They're talking around a very delicate issue there, and they are, uh, of course, trying to make an ecumenical basis for a relationship with the Jews. Uh, and and we know where that has gone, where Ratzinger is, has even said as Cardinal and John Paul II approving, that they have a separate path to God, that they need not belong to the New Testament, that, that, that their Old Testament is still valid. Uh, I mean, that, that's where that's going. Uh, and again, that's official interpretation. That's not something cooked up by some crazy theologian. That's official interpretation. I've and, heard uh, describe that actually as apostasy rather than simply heresy. Is, is, there, is there something accuracy in that description? <laughs> I'll say that I didn't catch that. Just ask me that question. Some people have said that this idea that we shouldn't be converting Jews because they have their own way to God is actually a form of apostasy from the Christian faith. Yes, it is. Rather, it is apostasy. Yeah. To say that there is someone exempt from hmm. the New Covenant, the New Testament, someone, uh, therefore there is someone that need not be redeemed that is not in, in need of the blood of Christ and of baptism, 
uh, is apostasy. Absolutely, it is the repudiation of the whole Catholic religion. Absolutely, it is. And uh, you know the so we know what these obscure statements in Nostra Aetate are, where they're going. Yeah. From from the subsequent interpretation given by statements and praxis too. All of the uh, overtures to the you know ecumenical overtures to Jews uh, in, you know over the past fifty years uh, ha- have uh, confirmed that interpretation. Thank you, my lord. I don't, I don't have any more questions on Australia. I wonder if there's anything else that I missed that perhaps you would uh, wish to raise. No, just there is this. Uh, you know, the, the, I remember when that document came out, there was so much publicity by by saying the church says that the Jews are not responsible for the death of Christ, and that was very much discussed. Uh, the um, I never saw any document that says that the Jews are responsible for the death of Christ, and I, I didn't understand it. At the time, I, I thought, why are they saying this? We were never taught this in catechisms, uh, that the Jews were responsible for the death of Christ. And, and by that, I mean the present-day Jews. Obviously, the, the Jews at the time who called for his death were responsible. And St. Peter says that two times, I believe, in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but I'm talking about present-day Jews, that, that there is a guilt upon them uh, for the death of Christ. I never saw that in any document of the Church. Uh, you know, perhaps the fathers here and there, but I, you know, but I've never seen that as as doctrine, and I never understood why that was such a uh, something that was uh, so important for for so many people. I mean, the, the church has never been uh, an enemy uh, of the Jewish people as a people, and has always sought their conversion, and has always uh, been. Uh, uh, charitable toward them when they have been persecuted, always condemned the various persecutions that they underwent in medieval Europe, and uh, but on the other hand, did take steps in her history to uh, protect Catholic society from any sort of uh, anti-Catholic activity on their part. So, I mean, but the Church has never been the fomenter of the idea that that uh, Jews should be maltreated for some reason because they're guilty of the death of Christ. Uh, it just is not true. Well, you're actually, I think we are, we're going to continue this, this idea of talking about the, non, the, the non-Christian religions and transition back to ecumenism because we have a couple, I could say, ecumenical questions that are being posed to you. Yeah. Um, so uh, the first question, well, I'll just ask them together because they're, they're related. How are Roman Catholic traditionalists substantially different from Holy Orthodoxy? Is not Orthodoxy the true Catholic Church? And why would we draw the line at Vatican II? How do we know that innovation didn't start earlier, as the Orthodox argue? Uh, so, Holy, but, but if he means by Holy Orthodoxy there, I assume he means schismatics, like I'm assu- schismatics. Yeah, I was, I'm assuming he's Orthodox. The, the asker of the question is, is clearly asking it as a member of the Orthodox. Religion. Well, the uh, ultimately it gets down to the conformity uh, to previously defined doctrine. Uh, the uh, it the uh, how should I, this really is the question of do we uh, accept Vatican II as as uh, valid and and correct and orthodox 
because it is promulgated by a pope, or do we see that Vatican II contradicts Catholic doctrine, and therefore we say that there's something wrong with the pope and the bishops who who promulgated it? Which comes first? Uh, apostolic authority or the faith? That's the the uh, the question there, and, was, and the answer is the faith. And the reason is that we know apostolic authority through the faith. And so, once the faith is preached to us, we are obliged by that virtue to compare every single thing that we hear to the faith and judge it in the light of the faith. Every single thing that we hear, if, if the people on, on the bus should talk to us, every single thing that we hear from them must be judged in the light of the faith as the as what is absolutely true. And that's why St. Paul says, if I, meaning I the Apostle, having obviously apostolic authority, or an angel from heaven should come and say to you, give you a gospel which is different from what I have preached to you, let him be anathema. And then he repeats it. This is in the first chapter of Galatians. He repeats it. Let him be anathema. He says the same thing again uh, to the Galatians indicating that once their faith is established, it is unchangeable by anybody. And so the church itself is bound to its previous definitions. Uh, the Pope himself is bound to the previous definitions, uh, and he is not free to alter them. So what has primacy is the ascent of faith to dogma. If someone contradicts that dogma, he obviously... Uh, falls in the case uh, of authority he, he falls from authority uh, and uh, because the the uh, the nature of authority is to confirm the doctrine and to uphold the doctrine and it is essentially contrary to the authority to promulgate something false and contrary to Catholic dogma so the the uh, the difference between say the the schism of the East and and what we're doing is big. First of all, the schism of the East started out as a schism. That is, a refusal to accept the authority of the Roman pontiff. Their doctrinal deviation came after the schism. But it, they, you know, this is not a question of of challenging the authority of the Roman pontiff. Not at all. We are uh, all traditionalists are totally submitted to the authority of the Roman Pontiff. This is a question of whether the Roman Pontiff is teaching the Catholic faith in conformity with what has always been taught. That has really nothing to do with the Greek schism. So you know that's what I would respond to him. Uh, and all of their doctrinal issues with Rome have been over the authority of the Roman Pontiff to be the the authentic promulgator of of the Catholic faith. Uh, and uh, it, it uh, even filioque is that. You know, whether he has the authority uh, to, to determine the creed of the Catholic Church. And of course, they would say he can't do that without a council. Uh, and this is just not true. The Roman pontiff is not, not obliged to call any council. Even if there had been no councils in the church, he still would have that authority. Uh, mm. And uh, but can he determine the creed contrary to what has been already determined? Obviously not, because he is bound to it. Now, of course, they will respond. Well, filioque was contrary to what was already taught, and that's not true. It was not contrary to anything. 
There was, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I mean, it was not not didn't contradict anything in the previous creeds. Uh, Nicaea, for example, added many things that were not in the Apostles' Creed. It did not contradict anything, but it added a lot. The yes. Athanasian Creed, which is commonly considered a creed in, in the Church, adds a great deal. It does not contradict, but it adds a great deal. Um, various other professions of faith um, uh, say much more than, than Nicaea. Uh, Constantinople uh, added to Nicaea. Uh, so I mean, there there is a progress in the formulation of the doctrines of the faith, and the Roman Pontiff is ultimately responsible in that, and has the ultimate authority in that. Uh, and but it can never contradict, and that that's the essence of this: is this contradiction? Is the is Vatican II Roman Catholicism or not? And and uh, so that's how I would respond that that this really has nothing to do with papal authority, nothing whatever to do with papal authority. Nothing, whatever to do with his ability to augment uh, dogmatic formulas by by uh, by new formulas which are totally in accordance with the previous ones. No, no discussion about that at all. This is a question of whether it contradicts, and if it contradicts, it's dead. It's finished. Vatican II is dead in the water if historically it has contradicted the teaching of the Catholic Church. And I think that the 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 modernist authorities, the the you know, the Benedict on down, are shaking in their boots over that. That people are noticing historians and so forth are noticing that the Vatican II contradicts the teaching of the Catholic Church if that is, and that's why they want this this hermeneutic of continuity to save the baby of Vatican II, to save this objection of the Catholic Church, this conformity of the Catholic Church to the modern world. They see the shambles that the Catholic Church is in. They see people questioning Vatican II, and I think they are shaking in their boots about what the future of Vatican II is. There's a there's a very good article with the title "Saving the Baby," Your Excellency. I, I don't know who wrote that, but uh, oh, some very intelligent in- man, I think, who wrote that. <laughs> if anyone's interested in that article, I'll be posting it to Twitter here in a moment. It was something uh, His Excellency wrote uh, in 2006. Um, it was part of the seminary newsletter, which you get for free if you make a donation to Most Holy Trinity Seminary, um, which of course will give. His Excellency a chance to speak a little bit about the seminary at some point as well, uh, because a rector does have to uh, to mention that from time to time. Um, we are um, going on to our next document. For those of you who have been listening, those of you who are joining us in progress, continuing to watch the number of live listeners is increasing. So there are some people who are joining us now. You are listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic today is the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the next document that we are going to be talking about is the infamous and often most polemicized document, Dignitatis Humanae, um, Nicholas. Yes, and uh, having uh, read it afresh in preparation for the show, it's easy to see why it is the most polemicized, because to my mind, it's crystal clear uh, that they're contradicting previous church teaching, in uh, many paragraphs of this document, 
And perhaps that's why we got all the way up to 70 church fathers rather than five who were unwilling to sign off on it. Uh, Dignitati Simani, of course, was the promulgator on December the 7th, 1965, and the vote was 2,308 to 70. Now, before we launch into some of the specific passages that I'd like to discuss with you, Lord, I, I think it would be worth it for our listeners if we could talk briefly about what sort of authority is to be placed on the syllabus of errors of Pope Pius IX and uh, Mirari Vos of Pope uh, Gregory the uh, seven, 16th, 17th? 16th. Um, 16th. Uh, um, are, are those two documents part of the magisterium? Are they Would they be infallible church teaching? Well, the, uh, there's some discussion about the syllabus, whether it has uh, its own authority or whether it is merely a collection of, of other documents which have their own authority, like a citation of other documents which have their own authority. So I, I think we should move off the syllabus to Quanta Cura. Quanta Cura is the key document which so explicitly condemns what uh, Dignitati Sumane explicitly teaches. Uh, it's practically word for word, if you have both of them in front of you, it would help your listeners, I think, a word for word contradiction. Uh, and certainly, Quantacura is uh, a, a an infallible document. If you read the final paragraph of it, where he says that, by apostolic authority, I require all of the sons of the church to to condemn these doctrines uh, and uh, makes a very, very authoritative statement requiring observance, which is uh, uh, a sign of binding the faithful, and binding the faithful is key in infallibility. See, the church cannot bind your, your conscience to something, bind your mind to agree with something without the authority, the full authority. And so he cites that full authority, and therefore it is uh, it is uh, an infallible statement, and was accepted as such in the 19th century. So I, I just would like to get off the syllabus in order to to right. avoid that discussion. Uh, all of the let's say how would we, what word are we going to use the the good theologians consider the syllabus infallible. All of the left-leaning theologians consider it non-infallible. Uh, Cardinal uh, Bishop Dupont Lou and others, you know, uh, uh, poo-pooed its its uh, authority. And uh, uh, people who were of liberal bent tried to m- m- mollify the authority of the syllabus. Uh, syllabus. But Quantacura is very, very clear. So, and uh, uh, Mirari Vos, I believe, also uses very similar language in it. Uh, but you know, if you're looking for a uh, a clear example of contradiction of previous doctrine, uh, word for word, double column, you've got it in religious liberty. Mm-hmm. And. Is that perhaps a bit of an out then for some of the those of the liberal bent? Because I notice when I look at the uh, just going back to the syllabus for a moment, the strongest and clearest phrases condemning 
um, religious liberty, and it's specifically um, like numbers 77, 78, and 79 are almost word-for-word word contradicted in Dignitatis Humanae, but those three all come from allocutions, so that an allocution wouldn't hold the same yes, weight. Yes, if he binds, uh, if he binds, but it's very, very clear in Quanta Cura. The, the contradiction is very clear in Quanta Cura. Um, and uh uh that's really where the the uh you know where you should be looking uh, it's um um uh it's it it, it is the uh, certainly the clearest contradiction i i think that the the clearest heresy is in ecumenism but the clearest contradiction is here uh right the uh so uh um uh, I have it uh let's see this is Quanta Cura. This is Pius IX. As a consequence of this absolutely false idea of social government, they do not hesitate to favor that erroneous opinion, most fatal to the Catholic Church and to the salvation of souls, which our predecessor of happy memory Gregory the sixteenth called a delirium, namely that the liberty of conscience and of forms of worship is a right proper to every man that it must be proclaimed in every well-established state, and that the citizens have a right to full freedom to manifest their opinions loudly and publicly, whatever these may be, by word, by printing, or otherwise. And uh, then on uh, in Dignitati Sumane, uh, the, this Vatican Synod declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom, this freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and of any human power in such wise that in matters religious no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs. Nor is anyone to be restrained from acting in accordance with his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others. A little farther on says it says religious bodies also have the right not to be hindered in their public teaching and witness, and witness to their faith, whether by the spoken or by the written word. Uh, so the, uh, I mean, there is a very, very uh, clear contradiction. Uh, uh, Pius IX says in that same document, and there will never be lacking men who will dare to resist the truth and put their confidence in the verbiage of human wisdom an extremely harmful vanity that Christian faith and wisdom must carefully avoid in accordance with the teaching of our Lord himself. So he is citing revelation there, you see, in accordance with the teaching of our Lord himself. So he is elevating this to a heresy uh, by saying that if it's contrary to the teaching of our Lord himself, uh, there's, uh, obviously uh, uh, you have heresy there. So... Um, and uh and then you know Pius IX is is very very clear at the end of that document about the necessity to uh, adhere to what he's saying and to condemn what he is condemning right. and just uh, for our listeners the citations for the two uh, things that George have just uh, quoted from Quanta Cura readers can look at uh, section 3 and it's the second paragraph into that section I'm just looking at the uh, version of Quanticura on papalencyclicals.net. That's where there's the quote from uh, Quanticura, which quotes the passage from uh, Mirare Votes that I was going to reference that very clearly condemns uh, this uh, idea of religious liberty. And then the quote from the Second Vatican Council, where they declare that the human person has the right to religious freedom, that's uh, number two, uh, or, or section two, 
on the uh, version that I'm looking at from the uh, Vatican website. Now, at the end of that first paragraph where the the church uh, mentions, or the uh, council fathers, they say, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others, but then they add in within due limits. It seems to me they're trying to put a bit of an escape hatch for themselves there, but... um, I would say, because I think Osama bin Laden and his associates were acting in accordance with their religious beliefs on on September 11th, 2001. Why are they exempt from this right? Right. I mean, they would cite religion for what they did and for all of the other terrorism that those groups carry on. Why is that forbidden? According to this, why why don't they have a right to do that, or why doesn't someone have a right to blaspheme the Virgin Mary in the name of religion, as many Protestants would, and as many artists? I mean, remember there was a, a painting in Brooklyn in the Brooklyn Museum where they attached elephant dung to the Virgin Mary <clears throat> and to the image of the Virgin Mary. Why is that contrary to your religious rights? Why not? Right. Well, it seems to me the only, when they speak of due limits, it seems to me that the only due limit that they're willing to put on is, I see at the bottom of the third paragraph under Sin Section 2, is again reaffirming these rights, and they say, provided that just public order be observed. So it seems that that's the only limit they're they're willing to put on it is, uh, uh, would you agree with that assessment, that... uh, Public order is the only caveat that's that's put in this. It document. seems so. I mean, I mean the way uh, the uh, as a matter of fact, that was condemned also by Pius IX. He says in Quanta Cura, furthermore, contrary to the teaching of Scripture, there he cites Revelation of the Church, the teaching of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers. They do not fear to affirm that quote. The best government is that in which there is not conceded to the authorities the duty of curbing the violators of the Catholic religion with this sanction of penalties, except when public tranquility demands it. That is already in Quantacura. So they have lifted... I mean, you have to say that they went into Quantacura and practically lifted. They didn't have a cut and paste at that time, but they practically did it and approved what Quantacura disapproved of. Uh, and this is, this is what Pius IX says at the end of Quantacura, in consequence, all and each of the disordered opinions and doctrines recalled in detail in this letter, we reprove, proscribe, and condemn with our apostolic authority, and we will and ordain that all the sons of the Catholic Church hold them absolutely as reproved, proscribed, and condemned. Can he be more explicit? Mm-hmm. He cites his apostolic authority. This is an infallible condemnation of a false doctrine, and Vatican II teaches this false doctrine condemned by Pius IX solemnly. Right. And they, they take it even a step further later in the same section. Now, in the fifth paragraph I'm looking, the, there's a... Uh, declaration there that uh, freedom of the press is uh, is part of this freedom of religion. So have, uh, the, the inquiry is to be free, carried on with the aid of teaching and instruction, communication and dialogue 
in the course of which men explain to one another the truth they have discovered or think they have discovered in order thus to assist one another in the quest for truth. And that seems to be a, a complete contradiction of the whole purpose of ever having a index of forbidden works. Yes, yes. It it again gives value to false religions that that they have a right to exist in God's eyes. Not only do they not have a right to exist, they don't exist because there's only right. one true religion. They have no right to exist because they are false religions. They are, are are they they represent God falsely, and therefore they are an abomination in God's sight as false religions. This is the traditional teaching of the church. Everybody knows it. And to say that you have a right, right is something that is based in God. It is an appeal to God when you say you have a right. It is a moral faculty given to you by God that no one can violate. No power can violate. Not even God himself because it would be contrary to his essence to violate a right. And so these people have a right to to publish books and to speak against the Virgin Mary, to speak against the Trinity, to to say blasphemous things about the Son of God and and various other awful things that have to to say that the the Blessed Sacrament is only bread, to to blaspheme Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, to blaspheme Christ the King, that they have a right to do all those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, this is the, a, a be like that is worse than saying that they have a right to kill babies in their wombs. This is a moral question. This is a question of morality. A right. It, it would have been less serious if the council had said women have the right to abort their children, because the promulgation of heresy, first the very sin of heresy, is actually worse than murder or abortion. Right. And the promulgation and I, of heresy, the organization of heresy, and of various other non-Catholic religions is far, far worse. It would be as if saying not only does a woman have a right to an abortion, but she has a right to set up abortion clinics and to carry on abortions and to organize in favor of abortion. It would have been less the, grave if they had said that. Right, And they'd even seem to say that she'd have the right to... Um, proselytize and tell other people that abortion is a good thing because that that seems to be uh, if uh, I mean I, uh, that that's what I seem to be reading here when they're saying that they have the right to explain to one another the truth they've discovered or think that they've discovered right. and um, uh, again and then in uh, a little bit later on still in section three that there's um, it's the uh, Fifth paragraph, or fourth paragraph, they're uh, again saying the social nature of man, however, itself requires that he should give external expression to his internal acts of religion, that he should share with others in matters religious, that he should profess his religion in community. Mm-hmm. Yes. They can so, found and, seminaries and train clergy and... And the this interpretation... Well, this doesn't need interpretation, but if anybody has a doubt... The, if you look at the Helsinki agreements, the Helsinki Accords, the Vatican took part in those in the 1990s or 80s maybe. 
And all of this is repeated, the, these rights of, of people to to train their, their clergy and and to uh, set up churches and all. This is all part of the Helsinki Accord and went with the blessing of the Vatican. Now, was there some allowance for a toleration of false religions prior to Vatican II, though? And, and how, if so, how does that... Uh, how is that different than what we're looking at here? Yes, there is. Leo XIII said it. Uh, there is a, a that that in in cases where uh, uh, it is necessary to avoid a greater evil or where a greater good might be accomplished, one may tolerate false religions. And so in order to avoid civil war, for example, that's the classic example given, uh, one may tolerate false religions, but the object of toleration is an evil. Toleration is a suffering. You, you bear something. The, but whereas the object of a right is a good. So the, the, the moral heresy here is the, that you are giving a right to somebody, a civil right. And of course, if it's a civil right, it presupposes the moral right, because you could never have a civil right to do something that you don't have a moral right to. And the the they are are saying that, the, and they even speak about the moral right, the right of each person to religious liberty, which is a moral right. That is a a, a moral heresy, and don't forget the church is infallible in teaching faith and morals. This is a moral heresy, and. And uh, uh, it is opening the door. It reminds me of the, the pit in the apocalypse, opening the pit in the apocalypse, giving the, the right to every sort of human aberration to spread itself all over the place and you know, where all of the filth pours out of the pit. Uh, the, it, it is opening the, that evil door with this key. And, uh, it, and it's typically liberal. The idea being by the exchange of ideas and by everybody uh, sort of uh, talking to each other that man is going to follow the right path. That is so typical of liberals, that man will do the right thing. History has taught us that man will do the wrong thing. Furthermore, nowhere do you have freedom in, in, in other doctrines. For example, is there freedom of biology? Uh, when you go to medical school, are you free to embrace any kind of medicine you want, like voodoo medicine? Is there freedom of engineering? Is there freedom of mathematics? Does not the state require you to observe certain, uh, certain ideas about these things and to pass examinations on these ideas? Of course, there's an orthodoxy in all of those uh, lines of work, in science, in physics, in space physics, everything. There is an orthodoxy. And unless you conform to the orthodoxy, you cannot function. But uh, concerning God, which is the most important knowledge, you can say anything you want. And as part of your human dignity, to be able to say anything you want and to preach it and to organize yourself based on it with other people uh and and you know the most important knowledge therefore is 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 trampled upon by this this 
false liberty that they're talking about. I mean, imagine the medical world if if we had freedom of medicine. Imagine when you checked into a hospital, what they might do to you. Right. Mankind well, does um, not, since original sin, follow the truth. If he did, there would not have been a need for a church. The church is there to teach the truth and to draw men out of ignorance and to give human beings the, the right, not only the ability, but the right to promulgate whatever they please in matters religious. My God, you're, 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 you're just inviting the ruin of the human race. And that's what we've seen in the past 50 years. The mm-hmm. ruin of the human right. race. Particularly yeah, in yeah. those areas which were once Catholic. Absolutely, and uh, we could talk about the dismantling of what confessional state still existed as, I mean, I don't think interpretation is needed of Dignitatis Humanae. I mean, it's right there in black and white, and it's only ten pages. We only made it to page three, and we were able to talk about (laughs) as many uh, contradictions as we were. So I encourage readers, if nothing else, to read that document, because it's it's crystal clear, and it's short, and uh, easy to see what's going on there. But... um, we're we're out of time for this document, and we still have uh, a, a bit. We still have one more document to discuss, and then some uh, some closing discussions. Um, so I'm going to be uh, handing us over uh, back to Stephen. Um, just but, one uh, last I thing think, uh, on this document, though. Just one last thing. This makes reference to Revelation as the source of this right. It says in paragraph nine, "What is more, this doctrine of freedom." has roots in divine revelation. And for this reason, Christians are bound to respect it all the more conscientiously. That means it's part of their faith, which right. which makes it heresy. To, to elevate that to the point of an object of faith makes it heresy. That's all I wanted and, to say. And I, <laughs> I think we'll, we'll discuss... I think we're going to discuss the consequences uh, after we've gone over all the documents. So I'll... I'll keep that in mind to bring up when we get there. Yes. Okay. And, and regretfully, Your Excellency, I should have set up a little heresy ometer to, at the beginning of the show today to see how many times you'd say the word heresy today, just so we'd have documentation of that. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, I've continued to watch the live listener count build. Uh, so those of you who are coming late to mass slash the uh, the radio show here, you've been listening uh, so far to Restoration Radio. I'm Stephen Heiner, together with my very able and erudite co-host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and Dr. Pierre Hugel, with um, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, answering questions without stopping. Um, mm-hmm. We are now to our final document. And, Your Excellency, I want to reference, uh, you and I did that interview back in 2009, uh, and I'm sitting here in cold Kansas City, and I'm thinking how warm it is down there. And I uh, remembered that one of your remedies, I think I had cited Bishop Tissier saying that he wanted the council to be erased, and you said, I want all of the documents to be burned in St. Peter's Square. And I remember telling that to Bishop Williamson, and he thought that was really funny. Um, (laughs) But I think that this document should be the first document burnt, um, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is our last document for today. In fact... I would go so far as to say, just for good measure, all faithful Catholics should burn this document once a month, <laughs> um, printing it out and then just ritualistically burning it. Nicholas has children. I think he should have his children light the fire under this. <laughs> for those of us who grew up in the Novus Ordo Church, 
This document is a crime scene. It is rife with forensic evidence for things that I know now as the norm within the Novus Ordo Church, um, and things that I can't believe that council fathers signed off on. The level of disrespect towards the old liturgy, so-called old liturgy, towards the traditional mass, the number of times the words active participation are used, sickening, and relates to the good work Father Chikata has done in his book about what the, the liturgical movement, the bad side that took over after uh, Dom Granger, uh, that started to talk about active participation in the modernist way that we understand it today with uh, liturgical dance and hand clapping. Mm-hmm. So I, I mentioned in, in the pre-show discussion, uh, rather like a mosquito at a nudist colony, I don't really know where to begin. Uh, but I think I would just ask the tone of the document in which the old forms are denigrated, disrespected, they're, they're talked about as superstitious. It, this seems to be the elite notion of liturgy found its way into the council. Because th- these are the terms that, you know, uh, all of the pre-conciliar Romano Guardini, those sorts of people who were innovating, they would have used terms like this. How did such language make it into this document? Well, through Bonini. Bonini wrote the document. Uh, Bonini is the the classic liturgical monster. I mean, if you had to describe someone as a liturgical monster, uh, he fits the bill entirely. Uh, and Father Chikata's book was so good uh, describing all of that. Um, there was, as I mentioned before, there was a hijacking of the wonderful liturgical movement that was started principally by <coughs> Dom Guéranger, and uh, where there was a greater interest in the sacred liturgy of the church. There was an improvement of, uh, excuse me, church music, the publishing of missals, uh, explanation of the mass, a lot of books explaining the mass. Uh, it was a wonderful movement, and Pius X uh, capitalized on it a great deal and gave it encouragement, uh, especially by his his uh, motu proprio on sacred music, which really cleaned up the the music of the Catholic Church. Uh, and um, uh, it, it really had a great beginning. Then, you know, the death of Pius X is is a was a terrible thing that happened in 1914. I mean, we always think of World War One. But the worst thing that happened in 1914 was the death of Pius X, because Mm. that was the beginning of three weak pontificates in which all of the uh, modernists who submerged in the pontificate of Pius X gradually emerged again, uh, Roncalli being a a very clear example of that, uh, later John XXIII. And all modernists, you know, the coast was clear a little bit, uh, at least on, on the level of, not to say that those popes were modernists, but they were soft on the modernists. And they consciously repudiated the strong measures that Pius X took against the modernists. Uh, they were uh, convinced that you should be nicer to them, and if you're nice to them, they'll come around, and, and uh, they won't be uh, so nasty uh and and it, the the modernists had a very clear agenda for the church 
and they profited by this new atmosphere that from 1914 to 1958. And among those were the uh, liturgical modernists, who saw the liturgy correctly as the principal way in which to inculcate modernism into the people. See, the liturgy is really, in one sense, the caboose of the train. The, the for those who are perhaps not Americans, the the, the caboose which has been done away with, was always the, the last car in the train, in the sense that it is the, it is the effect of dogma. It is, it is the effect of Catholic discipline. It, it's the, the product of all of uh, 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 what's underneath Catholicism, the foundations of Catholicism, like the flower of it. It's the final thing. But on the other hand, just like a flower, it's the first thing you see. So in that sense, it's the locomotive with regard to its teaching ability and its ability to inculcate ideas and even culture. And so they they understood that completely, and they hijacked it. So you had characters like Baudouin, which, whom I mentioned before, who was like a uh, an ecumenical maniac. Uh, he was very active in the 1930s, but he, he died, I think, just shortly before the council. Uh, there was... Uh, Pius Parsh, uh, he was a liturgical modernist, uh, an innovator. Uh, Mantini, who as a young priest was cited by his bishop for, in the 1920s, saying Mass facing the people in Milan, or in, in, in his diocese, uh, Brescia perhaps. But it was as a young priest in whatever diocese he was. Uh, and... Uh, uh, they they all got on the the bandwagon. The modernists, the dogmatic modernists, uh, and the liturgical modernists got all got on the same bandwagon. They were all heading toward the same goal, but in different ways. And uh, so, I mean, there are many many names you could associate with the movement. You see a tremendous amount of literature associated with it. They were waiting in the wings. Uh, I know of a priest uh, that used to say the uh, he was a priest of the Diocese of Brooklyn, and he used to say the traditional Latin Mass right in my neighborhood. Uh, uh, and uh, he told me that when he was in the seminary in the 1940s, and this was for the Diocese of Brooklyn, that <coughs> the he would be taking notes, and the teacher would set aside the textbook, and typically the the progressive ones would. This is in the 1940s would set aside the textbook and teach from their notes. And he said that as he was writing things down, he thought to himself, I could get you for that on heresy. Uh, that he was shocked by what these these modernists were, were saying, the, these, these progressive uh, seminary teachers were saying in the 1940s. He also said that all of those liturgical modernists were all knew each other. They had their bookstores in which you would hear English liturgical chant going on as you browsed around the books with, uh, by uh, uh, Ellard and various others, all promoting this uh, new liturgy. Uh, if you look in the Mass of the Future by Ellard, uh, you see something that looks practically the same as the new Mass. And it is to say that this this modernist movement had the whole new Mass planned and the whole liturgical reform planned uh, before most of us were born. It goes back to the 30s and the 40s. 
And really, they didn't hide themselves that much because there was an atmosphere of softness toward them. If they had been around under Pius X, they would have been cleaning out the garbage cans of the of the Vatican. You know, like that would have been their, their liturgical function for the day. The, the, they, they would have been cast aside if not excommunicated. But they I think your point's well taken. Freedom. Excuse me. Hello. I think I, I said I think your point's well taken, uh, and that's that's I think what's so great about Father Jacada's intro to the book is he takes the time to walk through this. This didn't come out of nowhere. This didn't just happen in the '60s, as you say. It is something that was developing, rather uh, sort of in a unsalutary neglect, we could say. Yes. It was, uh, it was just developing back it, there, or a pretty face on it. Yes. Um, I just I want to I want to quickly read some of these, as I say, rather disgusting quotes. Um, I just there's no other word for it. Um, chapter one, uh, section twenty one, paragraph one and two. Mother Church desires to undertake with great care a general restoration of the liturgy itself. For the liturgy is made up of immutable elements divinely instituted and of elements subject to change. These, these not only may but ought to be changed with the passage of time if they have suffered from the intrusion of anything out of harmony with the inner nature of the liturgy or have become unsuited to it. In this restoration, again, as in the current liturgy is not good enough, both texts and rites should be drawn up so that they express more clearly the holy things which they signify. The Christian people, so far as possible, should be enabled to understand them with ease and to take part in them fully, actively, and as befits a community, which implies the traditional Mass was not easy to understand, was not easy to take part in, wasn't suited to a community, and there was no such thing as active participation. Mm -hmm. It denigrates in Section 27, private masses should be done as uh, not, should, should be done rarely. Um, we have in section 34, the rites should be distinguished by a noble simplicity. They should be short, clear, and unencumbered by useless repetitions. They should be within the people's powers of comprehension and normally should not require much explanation. Again, assuming that previously, uh, this wasn't the case. And, and finally, just this is a doozy, section 50, paragraph 2, for this purpose, the rights are to be simplified, due care being taken to preserve their substance, elements which, with the passage of time, came to be duplicated or were added with but little advantage are now to be discarded. Other elements which have suffered injury through accidents of history are now to be restored to the vigor which they had in the days of the Holy Fathers, as may seem useful or necessary. This attitude that the entire liturgical life of the Church was riddled with problems, is, is, that is what the document is rife with. That this is, you would think from reading this that the Church was in incredible trouble in the 1960s liturgically, and that if there wasn't a severe turnaround right now, we were going to be in a lot of trouble. Yes, it is that same alarm that Gaudium and Spes gives that that modern man is you know completely changed. You know he's like a man from Mars now, so we have to speak Martian. And it's this alarm that that we must do something, and uh, it's of course, as we know, completely false. Uh, 
the, uh, yes, the, in that is a description of the traditional liturgy as a totally inadequate thing, as a totally, <coughs> uh, I mean, containing errors, I mean, implicit in what they're saying. Uh, that it's like a historical mistake in many cases, and it's just uh, some sort of rotten fruit on the tree that really needs to be plucked off and uh, replaced with something better. I mean, it's as if the whole thing is corrupt, which is typical of heretics, that what we have received from the church is corrupt, that the the fruit of the centuries uh, of the church's dogma or the church's teaching or practice or it's all horrible it's all corrupt and uh that it has to be changed it's very very typical of of non-catholics uh, uh, heretics reformers in the bad sense uh, the uh, you know they can make appeal to you know they they would to Trent's uh, elimination of certain uh, sequences as being, you know, just a little bit too much, and to um, uh, you know, a few little changes here and there. Clement VIII, for example, uh, changed the the epistles and gospels from the Italic version into the Vulgate version. You see, that's an improvement, and and sure, it's the the Vulgate is a much better. Uh, translation uh, of the original scriptures than the italic is. Uh, you see, still see the italic in the graduals, though. But um, Pius X made certain changes in the calendar. Um, the you know what what feast we're going to celebrate today. Uh, so did Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, there are various uh, little things done here and there as improvements. Uh, but th- this sweeping statement of Vatican II is to say that, you know, the Mass we're saying today is just a complete wreck, which is is, is a typical of a heretical reformer. Uh, and it's just not true. The the Catholic Mass is, is not only is it, is it a dogmatic jewel, but it is also an artistic jewel. It, it is, uh, you know, to see a, a beautifully celebrated solemn high mass, for example, I mean, there's hardly anything on the face of the earth that compares to it, as far as yeah. homage to God and, and the beauty and, and, and grace of it. Uh, and to say that we're going to take that and throw it in the trash, I mean, you have to be crazy. They would have been less crazy if they had taken a a, a roller with paint on it and rolled the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I mean that would have been less uh, of a of a an insane even from the artistic point of view and the cultural point of view. I mean, let's set aside the doctrinal point of view. Uh, if they had done that, that would if they had just uh, or, or you know taken a hammer to the Pieta, which that crazy man did in the 1970s, uh, that would have he been probably less hate, of an he probably insult. hated the traditional mass too. <laughs> probably, you know, everyone was horrified by that. Oh my goodness, you know, the the the, the statue was damaged. I mean, they took this treasure of the centuries, this fruit of 2,000 years, the, this this precious antique, we might say, that has been not preserved, for, you know, it, which has grown as as a as a beautiful flowering tree, uh, you know, little by little and under the care of the church. They have taken that and, and they just trashed it. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 and replaced it with what? <laughs> <laughs> something that is, is is not even able to be stomached, and which yeah. has destroyed 
uh, and, and greatly reduced, let's say, I won't say too much, has very severely reduced mass attendance and has virtually destroyed mass attendance in the young people. Yes, I, I agree. I think all your points are well taken, and I think that my my more my Novus Ordo, my conservative Novus Ordo friends are going to tell me that I failed to cite that within the text that Latin is to be given the pride of place, organ is to be given the pride of place, Gregorian chant is to be given the pride of place, uh, the mass is to be said in Latin. But you said earlier about the Vatican II sandwiches. If yeah. you read the document as a whole, it is overarchingly a liberal document. It is only by interventions from probably Archbishop Lefebvre or Colonel Ottaviani that you get little sentences like, Latin should retain pride of place. One sentence. Entire paragraph on why we should use the vernacular. Yes. So we can yes, cite all sorts of... We must always remember that those documents are amalgams of, of a lot of uh, contributories. And, you know, a lot of people throw in this, throw in that, and then they say, okay, we'll throw it in. And and so you have to read those like that. That the, there is, you can see a liberal and conservative movement in it. Absolutely. Well, what's the interpretation? The interpretation is the praxis after the council. Find me some. Uh, uh, I mean, I lived through it. I lived through the the all of those sick masses. With, like on the feast of the Annunciation, we had a rock band in the seminary chapel singing uh, "Lady Madonna" in honor of the Annunciation of our Blessed Lady. Lady well, Madonna, when it was a popular t song at the time. I mean, just think about that. And that's when I said to myself, I have to get out of here. I mean, this is not my religion. <laughs> this is, you know, this is not what I was raised in. I can't believe what I'm seeing and hearing. All long hair and the electric guitars and everything. Lady yeah. Madonna. <laughs> and we're supposed to think of the Virgin Mary when they're singing this horrid, diabolical song. <laughs> well... That's yeah, the interpretation on on. of Vatican II. <laughs> I could definitely go on and on about how much I hate this particular document. I'll just I'll end with they didn't they didn't just leave the they the the mass they they talked about the office as well and in accord with what I said earlier. So this would be the uh, the chapter on on the divine office, which is chapter four, uh, section ninety two. It says, uh, readings from sacred scripture shall be arranged so that the riches of God's word may be easily accessible in more abundant measure. Readings excerpted from the works of the fathers shall be better selected. Uh, the accounts of martyrdom are to accord with the facts of history. To whatever extent may seem desirable, the hymns are to be restored to their original form, and whatever smacks of mythology or ill accords with Christian piety is to be removed or changed. That's your breviary, Your Excellency. You just have a bunch of mythology and ill-selected texts in the in the office that you say every day. Right. Too bad for you, huh? No, the the inter the the that means dump everything in the fathers that is against ecumenism, and there's plenty in there. That all has Absolutely. to be dumped. Uh, any sort of criticism of of any non-Catholic religion, uh, get rid of crime. The the reason why they got rid of Prime is because it had the martyrology, which is full of anti-ecumenical statements and doings of martyrs and people who were put to death by Mohammedans and various other, uh, or people who criticized, uh, like martyrs who spit at the at the idols. You see, we shouldn't do that. We should respect the idol worshippers and, and their mm -hmm. idol-worshipping religion. You see, we shouldn't have done things like that. And who who said things uh, you know that were that were not very nice to these these various persecutors, 
uh, that ha prime had to be dumped for that reason to get rid of the martyrology and uh, also the and this many actions of the saints that were anti-ecumenical saints being put to death by Protestants and and uh, or by Indians or <laughs> various other people who you know we have to. Uh, uh, you know we can't offend now, and so there was. It had to be ecumenized and and sanitized. That, that's really the point of all that. And then it also had to be modernized because the modernists don't believe that God can do anything extraordinary. Uh, that He cannot perform a miracle. So therefore, every time there is anything miraculous in the in the history of a saint, oh, this can't be true. Oh, this is impossible. I mean, they go in with that. Uh, with that attitude to you know even to verify whether it was done or not, and you know yes it, it is possible that that things creep in. Uh, the church never said that you know all of the the readings in in the in the breviary are necessarily infallible. There could be some historical errors in it. Uh, you know if you read comments on, on the breviary, uh, Pius X himself removed a few things that were not historically accurate. Uh, and uh, but to to make again this sweeping uh, statement about the the breviary as if it is just a one complete uh, like a collection of mythology and false statements and <laughs> you know it, it, it's of no use or good at all and it needs to be totally revamped uh, is typical of those modernist and heretical reformers. We've got about 15 minutes left, Your Excellency, so we are going to go to the conclusion. I'm going to read the, the last ad for today's um, show sponsor, Novus Ordo Watch. Benedict XVI has contended that there is no break between Vatican II and Catholic tradition, but rather that there is continuity. What continuity? Before Vatican II, Pope Pius XII said that true reunion can only come about by the return of dissidents to the one true Church of Christ. After Vatican II, the post-conciliar church doesn't seek converts and sponsors interfaith meetings like Assisi, where false religions are viewed as valid. Before Vatican II, many popes condemned Freemasonry by name and the Lodge called the church its mortal enemy. Since Vatican II, which Masonry dubbed the Revolution of John XXIII, the new church has collaborated with the Lodge. Examples like these abound. What's being pawned off as living tradition is not in continuity with the past, but stands in contradiction to it. Exposing these deceptions has been the ongoing mission of Novus Ordo Watch for the past decade to help the faithful in combating the counterfeit church. Fight the good fight by visiting and supporting NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. And I'm going to hand the ball to Nicholas to lead us through our conclusions. Right, and so we've uh, spent well over uh, two hours discussing uh, the various documents and Stephen mentioned the heresy o meter I, I, even without the meter it's, to my mind it's clear that we've identified over the course of this program uh, numerous passages that it's inescapable to, to say that they're heretical statements that were made and it's also known, but perhaps worth uh, mentioning that this was a, I mean, over 2,000 bishops, clearly that meets the test that uh, Your Lordship mentioned at the beginning of the show about it being a, a reasonable uh, 
representation of the whole of the church, presided over by the Pope, and at the beginning of each document, you've you've got the uh, uh, Pope Paul VI signing off uh, on the document, uh, again, saying, uh, Paul, uh, Bishop, uh, Servant of the Servants of God, um, and then uh, in union with the uh, uh, Fathers of the Council, uh, ad perpetuum re remoriam, and then gives us the uh, the document. So clear, it seems clearly it's it's an ecumenical council, and if you accept if you accept uh, Paul the sixth and John the twenty third as valid popes, uh, I mean, well, well, we'll go to the the. I mean, what conclusion can be drawn? It seems, seems to me, and, and I'm, I'll. Uh, I'll let uh, Bishop Sanborn confirm this, because I'm sure he'll agree with me. It seems to me the only way that we're left out is we either say somehow this didn't come from the church, and these, this couldn't have been an ecumenical council, and for it not to be an ecumenical council, Paul VI couldn't have been a valid pontiff somehow, or we say, well, this is the teaching of the church, this is a valid pontiff, therefore this is the Catholic faith, and we have to give assent to this. Yes, that is the enormous problem when you are finished analyzing Vatican II the way we have, uh, is what happened there. Uh, the uh, you well, first of all, let me read exactly what Paul VI says at the end of every every one of these. He says, each and this is after every document of the council. Each and every one of the things set forth in this decree has won the consent of the fathers. We, meaning Paul VI, too, by the apostolic authority conferred on us by Christ, join with the venerable fathers in approving, decreeing, and establishing these things in the Holy Spirit. And we direct that what has thus been enacted in synod be published to God's glory. I, Paul, Bishop of the Catholic Church. That's authoritative. So no one can possibly squirm out of out of the council by saying it was not authoritative. That is a, a promulgation by the authority of the church, assuming Paul VI was the authority of the church. Uh, uh, go ahead. I had another, maybe a related question. I wondered, we were talking about how many heresies we'd had, in fact discovered in these documents over the last uh, nearly three hours now. A question that springs to my mind, and it it's a, a, an argument that has um, been given to me by many Nova Sorda conservatives. How come so many thousands of bishops failed to see these heresies? Why is it that almost all of them went along with such clear... That, that's a very interesting question. Uh, Bishop Williamson addressed that in one of his recent Kyrie eleisons, and I agree uh, with what he said as one of the causes. And that is that the... Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Yep. And that is that the the process of corrupting the Catholic faith has been so long and so gradual since really I put it at the the slapping of Boniface the Eighth in the face by one of the lieutenants of Philip the Fair. I think that is the beginning of it in, in the early thirteen hundreds. But certainly with the Renaissance and and of course the reformation and and then the enlightenment did a tremendous amount of damage and then all of the damage of the freemasons in the 19th century that this has been a, a constant constant pounding 
uh, of uh, upon the minds of Catholics, the liberalization of Catholicism, the the uh, culture which is being constantly decatholicized, and where the the uh, everything that is logical to Catholicism is denied in culture and in society, uh, and so you grow up with this sort of dichotomy in your head of what is Catholic and what remains Catholic in the home and then what you see in, in modern society uh, and what everybody's doing, what everybody's thinking. And yes, I think that has that caused a great deal of damage uh, in, the, in the clergy ultimately. And there were a lot of liberals in the clergy. The other factor, I think, is the, uh, the effect of modernism and the uh, I'd say the weakness of Benedict the Fifteenth, Pius the Eleventh, and Pius the Twelfth in suppressing modernism. You had that was 1914 to 1958, uh, quite a few years there, in which modernists were permitted to flourish, sad to say, and where they were appointed to high positions, even after they demonstrated themselves as modernists. Most of the liberal uh, radical European bishops who were at Vatican II were Pius XII's bishops. I mean, in that sense, almost, you could say he's the remote author of this council. Not that he would have agreed with it or approved it, and indeed he, he said things very much to the contrary, but by his weakness, uh, he fanned the flames uh, of all of this modernism at the council. So there is that, that people rose to positions of authority who were modernists or what we call modernizers, and that is, if not modernist radicals themselves, they at least were leaning toward that. Um, uh, it's like uh, when you see the electoral uh, college maps today, you know, some, some states are deep blue, others are light blue. Uh, the, uh, they, they were leaning toward that, and, but were in positions of authority. There were very few who were staunch in their Catholicism, sad to say, and a, a lot who were very, uh, you know, tainted. The other is that the, another cause of it is that the modernists came in, like Ratzinger and Kung and, and, uh, and uh, Rahner, came in with complete organization. They came in like stormtroopers, uh, like SS divisions. I mean, mostly from the Rhine area. Uh, you know, uh, totally organized with an agenda uh, to completely turn over the church toward toward modernism. And on the other side, you had uh, a you know the conservative, more or less conservative uh, group of bishops, Cetus Internationalis Patrum who you know were yeah somewhat conservative and uh, but were disorganized and not really well formed you know they, they were not staunch they did not see the enemy they they were throwing rocks uh, at the german tanks so to speak you know i mean they they, they, they it was hopeless yeah, the polish, the polish <laughs> lancers trying to yeah, uh, charge yeah, the, yeah, the, the famous charge on on horse uh you know, it was pitiful, and uh, very few of them. Maybe uh, Bishop Sigo, he was one of the best. Sigo uh, in Brazil, uh, although we had a French name, but he was excellent. 
uh, I think probably the best of all of them. But you know, even the uh, the even Archbishop of Fever, who understood a, a great many of the bad things going on, you know, voted for most of those uh, decrees. He told us that he voted for everything except uh, ecumenism and religious liberty. That means he voted for Lumen Gentium. He voted for Gaudium et Spes. I mean, that shocks me because. Uh, he was so good. I heard him speak in conferences. I knew him personally. I mean, he was so firm in the faith, and and yet he did not see these things going on. Uh, and he was the one that told us that the 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 modernists were so well organized that uh, the day after the discussion, you would look in your mailbox and find what you should think, like a mimeographed letter about what happened yesterday and what you should think. Because in the middle of these two groups of radicals and, and conservatives, you had like the missionary and third world bishops who, you know, perhaps uh, did not know a lot and were very malleable uh, people either way. And the, because of the organization and prominence of the, of the, uh, of the liberals and the modernists, uh, they, they fell that way. But Archbishop Lefebvre said the biggest single factor, though, in all of it, was that the Pope was with them. That both John right. XXIII and Paul VI were with the liberals. And that at every fight, at every struggle, he would come down, either one of them would come down on the side of the modernists. And that influence of the Pope was so strong that anybody that had the slightest hesitation about a document or its orthodoxy or anything would say, well, the Pope approves it, therefore it must be okay. Right, and then I think that's where it comes back to the the thing, when I was saying the two options that it seems to me after going through this whole discussion, of there either somehow the, this wasn't a valid Pope or this is the Catholic faith, it, I think that option two was just so impossible that it to, to the minds of of these churchmen, I mean Archbishop Lefebvre, as we discussed in uh, our last show on Archbishop Lefebvre, he was entertained the possibility quite a bit later on. But I'm I'm sure at the time no one thought it was a possibility. But and, I think he thought it from the beginning, in my opinion. Oh, well, he said things uh, in the 1970s, which would lead you to believe that he was a saint of Acantus. Right. Then. Well, I, I'm referring to during the council itself, but um, unfortunately, we're running right out of time. But um, I think to wrap it up, well, it would be no no surprise where I, where uh, three out of the four of us would would come down when I propose the two proposals, and uh, I know listeners have considered uh, myself as the token non set of a contest, but. <laughs> I mean, going through this, it's inescapable. I, I, to, there's no way that the things we've been talking about come from the Catholic Church. So it seems to me there's there's no other option. And I mean, I'm not trying to make some authoritative pronouncement here that like Wandsbutter has spoken. I mean, who cares what uh, what I think? But um, but but I think that's the conclusion that that we're led to in this show. But I'll, I'll hand us back over to Stephen for the final wrap up because uh, we've got about a minute thirty left here. Well, first of all, thank you, Nicholas, and, and Your Excellency, we want to thank you uh, for taking up um, 
you know, Saturday is sometimes a free day for clerics before the work day of Sunday. Uh, oh, so not we really think clerics. Uh, no, Saturday is <laughs> very busy for us. <laughs> I know you've got confirmation. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day, three hours, to listen to us uh, walk through these documents with you. We really appreciate not only your erudition, but your time and your patience uh, with us. Um, for those who enjoyed time with this bishop, next Saturday, Bishop Dolan will be joining us to talk about the Feast of Christ the King. Um, that'll be at 11, uh, 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. Central Time next Saturday, and more details will, of course, follow on the website. You have been listening to Restoration Radio. Our theme today, the Second Vatican Council. I have been assisted by Nicholas Wansbutter and Dr. Pierre Hugel. Um, and our guest of honor today has been Bishop Donald Sanborn, who's helped us walk through six council documents. Um, thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, Your Excellency. Um, we will leave again with two ace pictures. And uh, thank, thank you, uh, my lord. And listeners, you can download this show off the same link that you're listening live. So be, be sure to keep that in mind. This program was brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers.